From Omaha, Nebraska to New York City. From planet Earth to extraterrestrial life in space. A podcast with no equal. Engaged in unconventional warfare through your speakers and headphones. This is a show about embracing the suck, conquering your demons, and finding God in the face of adversity. Chris Tonto Peranto. Twitch is on. Motherfucker, I'm going to shoot you in the face. Ian Scotto. You know, Ian and I have been dating for a long time. You are now tuned into the Battle Line Podcast. Oh yeah, that's right. The switch is on, ladies and gentlemen. I get pumped up. I get fired up when I hear that intro music for you. Those of you who don't know by now, that was done custom for us by the great Jimmy Allen, the uh, original guitar player, songwriter for Puddle of Mud, also in Against All Will. Uh, if you haven't checked them out, please do. We had an episode with him a while back, but yeah, that, that intro never gets old. Fires me up every time. The fact that I have Alex Jones <laughs> saying what he says on uh, on audio for that intro blows my mind as well. I mean, it's just, it's epic. You guys know it. I have no problem saying it. And, and that's Debbie Rashawn, of course, on the voiceover. Another guest that we've had on who I go way back in my days of radio with way back to 2006. That was really my start of radio, Fangoria Radio, with the great Debbie Rashan and Dee Snyder. But for those of you who are hearing this on Monday, you're probably, uh, you know, you already know June 6th, yesterday, was the anniversary, the 1944 anniversary of the storming of the beaches at Normandy and the largest seaborne invasion in history all going down right there in France. And, I mean, there's not much more I could say about that. There's plenty, as you know, to read. And I'm sure many of you have read all the history books and respect those guys immensely. Um, but it's also two years since the death of someone who was near and dear to me, near and dear to Chris. You've heard us talk about him, and that is Drew St. Dwyer, uh, former CIA, uh, Marine, and yeah, I'll still remember that day getting the call. And uh, I was I was pretty much, you know, the first other than, you know, police to, to hear about this unfortunate news. And uh, I immediately thought to call Chris. And that was the first time we'd talked in quite a few months. And it was devastating to both of us. I mean, you know, it, it truly is a blessing when you meet someone later on in life that becomes one of your best friends. Um I feel like it's just harder and harder to meet people that you have that real deep connection with later on in life. Mo most of my best friends are people that I've truly known for decades. And when I met Drew, we just hit it off as people. And, and it was because he was a genuine guy. <laughs> One thing I can say, and I'm laughing even thinking about it, is that there's people that you meet who, who people will go, everybody loved him, no one had a bad word to say. And honestly, that was not Drew, because most people love Drew, I will say. But if Drew didn't like you, and I know I said this on a previous show, it was like he had no problem holding back. He he would say it to your face, 
And uh, and he would he would be like, I don't like this guy. He just doesn't rub me the right way. And that was why I was so glad to be on Drew's good side. And I know Chris was as well. Like Chris was someone he spoke so highly of. And I think he was just super humble that he was always impressed by someone like Chris's resume when it's like his own resume was amazing. But I, that that genuine uh, characteristic, I think, is what I gravitated towards because in a lot of ways, I'm the same way. Um, and I'm a little suspicious when I meet someone who doesn't have a bad word to say about anybody. You know what I mean? You're like, what are they hiding? He had nothing to hide. He was, he always just kept it hundred percent real. Um, but he, he would always like hype me up in front of people and be like, this is Ian Scott. He's worked with Andrew Wilkow and Senator Bill Bradley and D Snyder. He's, he's like a legend in the community. And I'm just like, dude, what are you talking about? Because he did so much. And the thing about him, it was always about more than just himself. He was always about more than, than just him in that, um, you know, after he was in the military, he went on to volunteer as a firefighter and he loved animals, volunteered with dogs. He was such a dog lover, uh, adopted dogs and uh, the funny thing was when when he first told me uh, when I was working at Sirius XM, which we would use the building when we weren't supposed to, I'll say that I can say that now because it's like, what are you going to do? Fire me? I haven't been there for ages. Um, but I would I would have to sign him into the building. We would do our top secret uh, podcast and stuff that had nothing to do with the place, and we just use the facilities. And he was like, "Dude, can I bring in my my service dog?" And I'm just thinking, uh, I don't know, man. Like you you would suspect a military guy like drew probably is like a rottweiler or some pit bull and it's going to draw attention to him and no drew's service dog was the smallest sweetest dog that him and his wife had it was this tiny little dog that wore this badass marine corps vest but he loved dogs it it didn't matter it was like a big dog or a tiny little dog like he was very affectionate towards dogs and i got this i remember i got to spend uh, New Year's Eve, you know, prior to him passing away, of course, um, with him, his wife, and and his little dog, Mopsy. And his dog loved me, and I loved <laughs> I loved Mopsy. So, yeah, he's just greatly, greatly missed by his family, his friends, and that's why it was great to talk to Scott Dwyer on the podcast a year ago and get to know him a little bit better because I, I never um, met him prior. But, uh, you know, you could tell his family just had such a deep connection with the guy. And also he looked so young. You know, um, when he passed away, people my age, you know, like Jack Murphy is like two years older than me. He was like, wow, the guy was about my age. And I was like, no, actually, he wasn't. He just looked younger. He he looked very young and he had an attitude that was very young. But um, yeah, he was he was, um, you know, I don't know, like eight, nine years older than me. But uh, rest in peace to Drew Dwyer. Thank you for your service and, and thank you for being a great friend. And, and I know if you were here today you would have something to do with this podcast. I know you'd be happy to see that Chris and I are doing something together because we we both just had a great friendship with you, man. So you're missed. And before we get to uh, Benny Glossop, of course, uh, Fort Scott Munitions, I love what they do. I love their merchandise. They they have a great new, uh, you've heard Chris talk about, but the Tactus Squatch, uh, the uh, Tactus Squatch, shirt i was making sure i was pronouncing that right you know it's sasquatch with the uh with the ar and uh it, it's just so cool man so such creative design so check them out fort scott munitions is a manufacturer of multi-federal patented solid copper and brass cnc spun ammunition 
that is designed to tumble upon impact in soft tissue, leaving devastating wound channels for faster bleed-out and quicker incapacitation. The ammunition was originally developed to innovate and improve on the standard of military-grade ammunition design, and it was found that not only did the TUI, their trademark ammunition, outperform competitors in the self-defense industry, but it quickly became apparent that it would be a top contender for hunters alike. With the ammunition being CNC-spun, the tolerances are some of the tightest on the market, ensuring that you receive the same results with each pull of the trigger. Now, they are out of stock on their website because there's just such a high demand for ammo right now, but if you go to their website, you'll get uh, 15% off with the promo code BATTLELINE on any of their merchandise at fortscottmunitions.com. Link is in description. Or if you go to fortscottmunitions.com, you could click on the dealer locator and you're going to find a location right by you. For me here on Long Island, that's South Shore Sportsman in Merrick. And as you know, Long Island doesn't have a whole lot of gun stores. I mean, we have some. But the fact that you could get it that close to you tells me chances are any of you in America here at least will be able to find a dealer within, you know, 10, 20 miles of you maybe. So, you know, take the trip and get the best ammunition on the market. And if you want to uh, support them and, and get one of their badass shirts, which all fit great, by the way, it's fortscottmunitions.com, promo code BATTLELINE. You're helping out our show and you're getting some great merch for 15% off. So Fort Scott Munitions is a proud supporter of Chris Peranto, Battleline Tactical, and this podcast, the Battleline Podcast. Also, don't forget, our friends at Ned are doing a great job and providing the best CBD on the market. And that's because it only consists of two ingredients, and that's full-spectrum hemp extract and non-GMO organic MCT oil. That's it. They also have Body Butter, Lip Balm, and the Natural Cycles line. And uh, you know what? I was just in Florida, and you're seeing more and more um, different types of CBD. And some of you know what I mean. There there are lines of CBD-related products out there now that will get you high. If, if that's your thing, that's not what Ned is. And I could personally tell you I have no interest in getting high. I was a little suspicious the, the first time I tried Ned because I was look, like, look, I don't really want to do anything that's going to alter my mind state. And that is not what Ned is. Ned is just going to level you out. It's going to help with any anxiety or sleeplessness, but it is not going to get you high. Um, so if that's what you're looking to do, if you're looking to get high, Ned is not the brand for you, but if you're looking for something natural that's going to make a subtle change in you and then make a profound change in the long run, you're going to love them. Zero isolates, zero synthetic ingredients, um, but as for their, their um, full-spectrum hemp, if you do have to take a drug test or anything like that, they do always put the disclaimer out there that there is 0.3% uh, THC as allowed by law, so you may fail a drug test, although this is not going to get you high. So if that's uh, a concern for you, you could try out their other stuff. They do have other great products, as I said, like the body butter. Uh, and yeah, they have that Mellow product now, the magnesium product. Oh, that's great. There's so many benefits of magnesium that you could read about. I've always uh, been a believer in magnesium products, and especially if you're an athlete, chances are you're not getting enough magnesium in your diet. Uh, you'd have to eat a ton of different foods that are high in magnesium, like Brazil nuts, and like you'd have to eat a real lot. So it's it's a really important supplement to take 
So I would definitely suggest that mellow blend before you go to sleep. And uh, they also have their sleep blend. Uh, check them all out. And, and if you have any questions, their customer service is top-notch and they will answer any of that for you. So we have a lot of listeners who have become subscribers, who are now believers. We always get great feedback on Ned, and that's why we continue to work with them. So if you want to check out Ned and try their CBD or any of their other great products for yourself, we have a special offer. Go to helloned.com slash battleline, or enter battleline at checkout for 15% off your first one-time order, or 20% off your first subscription order, plus free shipping. That's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D dot com slash Battleline to get 15% off your first one-time order, or if you do a subscription order, you'll get 20% off your first subscription. Thank you, Ned. Let's get over to a guy who uh, has been doing some awesome stuff with Battleline Tactical. If you've been at a course, I know you speak highly of him. You heard Rudy Reyes speaking highly of him in the last episode. And there is a Battleline Tactical course coming up. If you're in the Chicago area, you'll want to check that out at uh, tontosgearlocker.com. It may be sold out by the time you hear this. If it's not, sign up. But yeah, that guy is none other than the professor, Benny Glossop. Looking forward to having him on for round two, second time on Battleline Podcast. So back on the show for the second appearance, uh, first time in a while, though. I mean, it's been, I think, over a year at this point, uh, I think. Benny Glossop, the professor, a master of many different skills, really. Close prevention specialist, first-degree black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, combatives instructor, fitness enthusiast. There's there's a whole lot we could get into. Um, as you probably know, Chris is like in, I think he's off to Vegas. He's somewhere now doing some type of speaking engagement. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I don't know. I haven't been able to talk to him for a week or two. <clears throat> Excuse me. And but I knew that he wasn't going to be on today. And I know that he's starting to have that pre-summer, you know, running around everywhere. Chicago next week. You know, maybe it's Vegas now. Speaking, teaching, the typical Chris life. So yeah, you know. I, it's funny because as as you've said to me, you're like you're always doing something different. He's kind of sort of similar in that it's either this podcast, it's the battle line tactical stuff with you and Ben. Or it's the speaking engagements. Like, I don't know about you. The speaking engagements, i that's one thing I don't think I would ever be able to do. You know, like, I feel like with the podcast, it's always something new every week. With what you guys do at Battleline Tactical, you're always switching it up. With speeches, it I you know, I know he switches it up a little bit, but it, it is a little bit more of a routine thing of telling your story again and again for all these, like, new people. Yeah, I mean, I'm a motivational speaker as well. Not nearly in the amount of capacity that Chris does it or as often, but it is weird. Like sometimes I'm in front of a bunch of fourth graders trying to motivate them through the beginning of their trials and tribulations as they're growing older. And, you know, it's early now, these kids are finding popularity and being bullied and, you know, the early onset of these things and trying to give them some inspiration and motivation to follow their dreams and, you know, make mistakes and, 
you know, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, I'm also standing in front of grown people that are looking to be inspired and motivated as well, because, you know, maybe they lost their job or they suffered an injury or whatever. So it's something that uh, I love to do, but you, it's a little weird. You know, I've tried to discover different ways to tell my story or different ways to get the message across so that it's not redundant for me. And I know Chris is really good at that because the last thing you want is people pay to come see you or invite you to speak to their group is such a great honor when there's a million people out there that have a story to tell and inspiration to give. And then you don't want to be so mundane because here I go telling this story for the 3000th time. And yeah. it sounds like, so when I was back in 1983, you know, yeah, and, so, and you could tell the people who have no passion for it anymore. Right. Right. And so I've learned like with kids to tell, I say, you know, one way I changed it up one time, I said, can I tell you a story about a little boy that I know something that happened to him when he was little. And then I gave a little clues about things that I do in my life now. And as the story progressed, and I said, and that kid grew up to be an ultra marathoner and a professional MMA fighter, and their eyes are getting a little bit bigger because the ones that are truly paying attention are realizing like, wait, have you been talking about yourself the whole time? And it, it was just a different way to kind of share the story and get the message across. And I had fun with it. So sometimes I go back to just plain and simple. Sometimes I try to be creative. And I know that the level, like we said, Chris does his thing. I mean, he's changing it up a lot. And also the type of group you're speaking to. I can be a lot more loose and have some foul language with one group, but I have to be very responsible, mature with another group. I have 20 minutes with this group. I've got two hours for that group. So I think that makes a difference too. Yeah, it's, it's all about definitely knowing your audience. I, I would think uh, it's probably easier to, in, and, and I wouldn't know because this isn't my field, but it's probably easier to inspire little kids in that little kids aren't yet jaded and they're like, oh, I've already heard this all. I think like some of the most profound influences on me, I think of our people that I heard their story when I was a teenager or when I was a young kid. And, you know, I even remember like you would be assigned books of certain people. Like I remember way before he was a political guy reading Dr. Ben Carson's book because he had a version for little kids, you know, yeah. about being from inner cities of Detroit to becoming like one of the most uh, you know, it, it's funny because there's a big difference between how Ben Carson is looked at now, but then, but he was, when I was in middle school, he was celebrated as like one of the most brilliant minds. Then when he got into politics, obviously half the country's like, they hate him for whatever reason, half the country loves the guy. Um, but I remember that book having a profound impact on me that it was like, wow, this guy could grow up to become a brain surgeon and, and become a guy. I mean, he, uh, he split the brain in half of like Siamese twins and they went on to like, he did things that are truly amazing. And I remember those books probably more than things I would read now, because at a certain point, yeah, you do get older, you get jaded and you feel like you, you know, more than maybe you do. And, and your, your brain is like a sponge at that age. Yeah. And as a child, you know, everything's science fiction. You're thinking about the moon and Mars and movies and things like that. And you see this guy that did this incredible brain splitting, you know, atoms, you know, all this science. You think I would only see that happen in a movie, but it's like real life. And so, you know, kids who have the greater imagination than most adults, I think, are able to accept, you know, if they did get a hold of that at a young age like you did, I think they would run with that. I think what's beneficial for me is I'm able to speak to kids because my story is about when I was a kid, I was 10 years old. And now I can share my successes as an adult because this journey started at a young age where Chris might have a hard time 
telling the Benghazi story to a bunch of 10-year-olds because they don't understand war so prolifically. And they might not understand killing and survival to a degree. I mean, and I think maybe more today they do than when we were kids, you know, yeah. with the internet and everything they, and video games, they know a lot more. I mean, heck, you got those uh, 12 and 14-year-old kids in South Florida that shot at the police the other day. And they said, yeah, I'm going to do this just like Grand Theft Auto. You know, mm. we, we had Defender and Atari games, you know, that were, they weren't teaching us to go shoot at cops. And so I think where I'm fortunate is having that, you know, ability that I can transcend a greater mass of age groups. And Chris could too. Like if anybody had an ability to share his story and make positive in a, in a military aspect of children, Chris would be able to do that so profoundly and in a funny way. But I think a lot of the guys that have been through a lot of drama wouldn't be able to do that with kids. So I'm fortunate that I can have that bigger spectrum. But no doubt, Chris is uh, doing it right with all his speeches and talks that he's going around and sharing with everybody. Yeah, Chris is definitely not the stereotypical, like, super serious military guy. He's the complete opposite of that. I mean, we both know him pretty well. So, Oh, yeah. You know, the, uh, when we, we really kind of live by the creed, check your ego, amigo, you know, like leave it yeah. at the door, whether you're coming in the gym or you're going on the range or walking through the grocery store. You know, um, you know, we had a guy road rage with a bunch of my buddies recently started yelling at us through the car window and he was making some pretty aggressive threats at us, you know, and he's got a three-year-old in the back. So my thing is Holy like, shit. why are you teaching your three-year-old to yell at people like this? You know, I, I want to raise my daughter to act better than that. But also you've got three shooters, a federal agent and me are all in the car. Like this guy doesn't know. I'm not saying that, you know, one of us wouldn't get hurt or killed, but if you don't check your ego, you don't know who you're mouthing off to and making serious threats to, you know? And so, you know, and that can be at the, at the grocery store, at the YMCA, it could be at school, uh, you know, especially when we're going to do our jobs. And so Chris is phenomenal at checking his ego and making it fun for everybody. Plus people learn better when you're not a prick, people want to learn from you. And when you act like an arrogant, you know, I, I always say, Ian, like, your last day in this life, people are going to look back at you and think one thing only. They're not going to think Benghazi hero. They're not going to think Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. They're not going to think anything other than one simple thing, whether or not you are an asshole. You know, it's they're true. either going to be like, you know, man, he was a great guy. Did a lot in life, got some cool stories, but just in general, he was a great guy. Or if you're just some profound, just, you know, horrible idiot of a person, they're going to be like, you know, he's gone. Didn't really like the guy very much. That's what I remember about him. And people really remember whether or not you are an asshole. That's the great end of your life, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I was actually, before I brought you on, I did an intro. And, you know, you probably know this. I know it's the anniversary of something, you know, significant for you as well. But this is going to be up on June 7th, June 6th, of course, the anniversary of D-Day. Um, yeah. But it's also the anniversary of two years ago great friend of of uh, Chris and mine, uh, Drew Dwyer died. Yeah. And, you know, I, and it's true. I don't think of, and did you ever get to meet him by any chance or? We corresponded together a lot. We never met in person, but because of our circle, we were in the same circle. We talked a lot through social media and really felt like I knew him personally because we'd go back and forth. And I'm thankful um, in many ways where I get tired of social media being so negative all the time. I'm thankful for it because I got to build relationships with people and one of them was with Drew. And that was such a sad and unfortunate thing. And uh, not to the level that you guys did, but I did feel like I knew him and I would you know, consider him a friend always. Yeah, no. For, and but what you were saying um, just now, it hit me with what you what you were talking about, because 
yeah, he was a CIA guy, much like Chris. He was a Marine. Um, but yeah, to me, that's not what I know him for, even though like I respected all that. To me, he really was just a great guy because like yourself, both of us didn't serve. We have the honor of like hanging around all these guys who really did and did remarkable things, although neither of us were in that world. Um, but yeah, he was done with all that when I met him and he was just a guy writing articles about it or doing podcasts with me about it. And I remember him as a guy who loved dogs and, uh, and was just one of the nicest people and one of the best friends that I met. So yeah, you're right. That is what you, what you remember people as, as much as I want people to remember his service. Um, yeah, I just remember him as a person. I remember the great cards that he would, you know, for my birthday and for like the holidays, he would hand write these cards that I still have and, and was a really sentimental guy. So yeah, what you're saying makes complete sense. He was, uh, we were both firefighters, you know, and so we had this firefighter connection. He was an advisor right. for, a, for a video game and I was in a really old school PC video game back in the early 2000s. What, what game was it? Cause I know he was an advisor for like a, uh, show, but yeah, I, well, it might have been a show, but I thought it was a game. If it might, it wasn't Halo. I mean, I don't remember for sure, but it was one of you know one of those tactical games where you can go online and you and I can play against each other, Florida to New York, and talk to each other, and you know. But uh, and he did an advisement for a show, and you know, and with with the FD, and then being in the combatives and me working with the military, we had so much in common, um, and it just felt like too bad we could never hang out because like like you, you know, I just really grew to appreciate and really like the guy, so. Um, we had enough in common that I think that that's where his popularity, he was getting pulled in a lot of places. And I think it was a lot of pressure for him, but he really kind of glued himself to the people that understood the world he lived in. And I think that's why I was lucky enough to, from an outside perspective, to get in with him because we shared some commonalities. And if we didn't, I would have just been another, you know, fan of the guy because he was such an awesome dude, you know? So that's a heartbreaker. And, you know, we lose too many good people like him. But like you said, we'll look back and think what a great guy he was, plain and simple. Yeah, it's true. And you know what? I, I should tell you this. I was going to mention at the start of the intro when you were saying you never got to meet him in person. I would have loved to have met met you in person just a couple of days ago because I don't know if you know, I just got back from South Florida yesterday, which is where I know where you are. And I'm most likely moving out to the area. So I would have liked to have done this in person, but I only had like a couple days there looking at apartments and I've been back and forth of like, am I going to move there? New York is just getting ridiculously expensive as well as all the other stuff going on here. But I do love the area. How, how long have you been? Have you always lived there? No, I grew up in Illinois on a farm. And so I was in Illinois till 21 and then I went to college outside of Chicago. So the farm is my roots. Chicago is home because Chicago developed me and really set my path for the man I am today. And, you know, in uh, 1999, I moved to Naples, Florida. And in 2000, I moved to Tampa. So I've been in Tampa and Naples. You know, I've been in Florida for 21 years. This November will be 21 years, actually 22 years. So um, November, I will actually have lived in Florida longer than I've lived anywhere else, which surpasses my childhood and young adulthood. But yeah, Illinois. And then I lived in Milwaukee for a year just for work. But I maintained a Chicago address through that. And then ended up in Florida, and I love it. I mean, it's the place to be. It's the absolute yeah. place to be. It is great. I love the weather and all that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I agree. The politics, the weather, all that stuff. The lack of politics, I, I should say, compared to here. Um, speaking of Illinois, though, I know that sometimes you're you're at the battle line courses. Sometimes you're not. I know that there's one coming up in Illinois. Are people going to see you there? No, I won't get to go this time. It's next weekend. Uh, it's my favorite that we do. 
Uh, we have a spot in uh, Texas in Fort Worth where we go to Defender Outdoors. And like that's home in Texas. So I go to Texas two times a year. We usually get Chicago once or twice a year. My absolute favorite place is everywhere we go. But this next weekend is my daughter's birthday and she's graduated high school and she's turning 18. And you so don't I'm, not gonna, sure. I'm not missing the monument of, you know, stuff. So instead, uh, her and I are going to go get a matching tattoo together. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what are you getting? And, uh, it's like a sunset and waves kind of fun, just a small little deal, you know, but I'm like, whatever you get, I want to, I want to get it and just be like my daughter, you know, she's, she's my pride. So we're going to have a great family weekend. You know, my wife's going along, maybe she'll get one too. I'm not sure, but it's, it's just unfortunate timing because to miss uh, Daniel and the crew at Devad Defense in Chicago breaks my heart. It's my favorite place to go ever. And that's home for me. You know, I always hit a ball game at Wrigley and I always visit my old apartment and I visit my old college roommates that are still around up there. And I get to train with some of the best in the industry. And I love working with the Chicago police officers that are training to get better to do the right thing. And the civilians that come out to want to just be so much more, you know, in tune with their weapon and, with their ability to protect themselves and, and be it. Chicago is a great city. I, I think it's not as bad as the reputation it gets because every city has got its bad spots. But again, it's political. It is, it is horrible in some areas, but if you're smart and you avoid certain areas, it's the greatest place ever, you know, just like anywhere. So I'm missing this one, man. I'm heartbroken. I'm missing Chicago this time. So, but that's totally understandable. Now I have to ask. Let's say that your daughter chose to get like the girliest tattoo ever. Would you have still gone with it? Yeah, I'd modify it. I'd modify, it, but I'd <laughs> have uh, I'd have something that would go with it. You know, okay. It may not it may not be matching, but it would it would be together. We would figure that out for sure. I mean, you've got a ton of tattoos anyway, so I would think you're running out of space. Well, you know what? It's funny. I always said I would never do my back because I can't see him and enjoy him. And I said, I would never do my legs because I've, you know, I've got skinny boy runner legs, but I like my legs. So I don't want to, those cover are the up. only two places I have tattoos, yeah. Manny, yeah. my <laughs> leg and my back. That's it. Yeah. So, you know, my arms are fully sleeved out. I've got a couple down, uh, you know, by my hip bones. Uh, and so I'm going to do, if you know, when people do the, uh, I love you with their fingers, it's like sure. the rock and roll sign, but the thumb is out every morning. Every single morning, my daughter drove off to school. I would wake up at 5.30 in the morning, watch her get ready for school. She gets out in the car and drives off, and we'd stand out in the driveway and watch her drive away. Every day, I watch my daughter drive off to school because it's one of those few little moments that I would, you know, get to have. I'm not going to get to have that ever again, you know? And so we would always do the I love you symbol. So I think I'm going to see if the artist can do the her handprint of the I love you and put that on my ribs. So that might be one of my next ones that's for her, but not the same as her. But yeah, um, you know, this one's probably going to go between my shoulder blades on my back, the little matching one. And because now I'm kind of getting over the whole fact that I can't see it. That's what they make mirrors for, I guess. <laughs> so, but yeah, yeah, I've got a lot of tattoos, but I've, I've protected some of the areas, so to speak. That's cool, man. That, that's awesome. And and it's cool that, you know, like, like you said, that you still get to go out to these areas where you have history. And, yeah. and do things. And yeah, I understand that you're missing it, but there'll be another one. Um, yeah, you know what? So I wanted to ask you about when I said that it was the anniversary, of course, um, as we're recording this, but you know, it'll be yesterday for the people listening of D-Day of Drew Dwyer. You also have a pretty big anniversary um, tomorrow as we're recording this, but Saturday for the audience. Yeah, you know, for Saturday. Um, and speaking of that, really quick, I want to give a little shout out. This will be a week late, but you know, it's, it's the thought that counts. Today is my great grandma's birthday. So happy birthday in heaven to my grandma, Nani. She helped raise me. 
she was integral in my childhood and she was alive for three months when my daughter was born. So my daughter for three months of her life was alive with a great, great grandmother. And that's pretty rare. Wow. So it is. Um, very special. And my buddy G Fresh, I'll just leave that. He's a U.S. Marshal. He's the one I get into most of my shenanigans with on a daily basis. Today is his birthday as well. So shout out to my buddy Gary, a.k.a. G Fresh. He's, he's everything to me as far as, uh, you know, family is family. You know, when it's not blood, you know, you, you get to pick your family. That, that guy's my family. So happy birthday to those two, big in my heart. Um, but yeah, tomorrow, uh, technically will be 38 years. Uh, I was 10 years old and, I got run over by a drunk driver uh, in a Ford half ton pickup truck and it, you know, broke every single rib, punctured and collapsed both lungs, lacerated liver, lacerated spleen, tore all the skin off the left side of my face. I had internal bleeding in my stomach and whether I was born that way or not, they found my appendix wrapped around my gallbladder. Pretty much every single thing in my body was cut, ripped, torn or broken in my torso with the exception of my heart. And most podcasts you hear the story or, you know, in speeches, but I think that's kind of what they mean when they say you got to have heart, like when you've got to have grit, because that's how strong that muscle is. That's how strong your heart is was, you know, it withstood a truck rolling over center mass on my entire body as a 10 year old boy. So every, every organ, every single thing in my body was bleeding, torn up, you know, twisted out of place, except for my heart. And we, you know, arrived to the emergency room. It was, the trauma center was a 40 minute drive away. So it was in an ambulance, no helicopters, none of that stuff. Not like there's a hell of, uh, emergency trauma center 10 minutes away, like most cities now. And a surgeon had said that if I'd have been 30 seconds later, I wouldn't have made it. So, you know, uh, 38 years ago, tomorrow will be, you know, the most devastating physical thing I've ever had to overcome, which turn, turned into quite a mental battle as well. You know, um, it, it affected my growth. It stunted my growth. From sixth grade to my sophomore year in high school, I was the same height and same weight. I mean, I within maybe an inch or less and a couple pounds, like I just did not grow again until I hit the middle years of high school. And I mean, you know, even though it was a small town and you're with a lot of great close friends, you know, it's still hard. People don't understand why you're little. You get picked on a little bit. And, you know, I didn't get to do what all my other friends wanted to do. And mentally, those things were very challenging for me. But I was surrounded by good kids, good teachers, a, a very strong family. And, you know, school wasn't ideal for me, but the people were. So, um, you know, tomorrow I celebrate what I call my my never give up day. Tomorrow's my never give up day, June 4th or June 5th. And, uh, you know, here we are, man. I'm, I'm doing everything I can to accept every challenge and create new challenges and move on and inspire other people. And, you know, people today will say, what do you do for a living? And I get to say, depends on what day of the week, because I work so many different jobs, you know, doing different yeah. stuff. And, and that, that one day I woke up and thought, if I'm going to look back and be little Benny, and I'm going to be the guy everybody said I was going to be, or I'm going to go take chances and challenge myself and, and win and fail and, and learn all at the same time and be great. So, you know, all of that really stemmed from the doctors telling me that, you know, you're going to grow up and you're going to be absolutely fine. You're going to be a normal guy, but physically you're never going to do contact sports. You're not going to be big. You're not going to be strong. Your body took way too much damage. So you're not going to be able to do the things that your normal friends are going to do, but you'll live a quote unquote normal life. And I, it just didn't fly with me. Like, why wouldn't I ever be able to do sports? And why wouldn't I ever be able to go roughhouse and climb trees and 
you know, you fall out of a tree and break all your ribs again or something, you, you can't handle that. So, you know, being told that I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't, you're too small, you're too weak, you don't, you won't. I mean, I ran with that. I believed that for a long time as a kid. It's very hard to be a child and live under that stigma when you believe it yourself. And then, you know, one day I woke up and thought, fuck it. <laughs> you know, I'm going to live my life and do what I want. I'm noticing changes. I'm developing. I'm becoming normal. And, and I actually can do these things. And one thing led to another and led to another. And, you know, here we are today doing all the things I get to do and meet all the people I get to meet and take on all these different challenges. A lot of them don't last, but I can say I tried and I had the experiences and I love it, man. Life is really good. Um, and I wouldn't be who I am today without having to do those things. Every time I broke a bone, you're not going to run anymore. Achilles tendon reconstruction surgery, two inches of your heel cut off. You're not going to run ultras anymore. You know, uh, broken foot two times. You're not going to be able to fight anymore. You can't kick people anymore. Every time I was told I couldn't do something, I took it to the next level and went farther than I ever was even before the injury happened. So I'm injury prone because of my work, but it always seems to work out for me, Ian. And I'll tell you, it's going to suck when I'm 70 because I'm arthritic like crazy. <laughs> um, and I, I hurt every day. I think if nobody would want to wake up and feel the pain I feel every morning and only get the two hours of sleep I get every single night because I get stiff. And I have good. to, I got to roll over and move. But once I'm moving, I'm awesome. You know, once I'm going, I get to go all day long and I laugh. But, you know, complaining about it's not going to help. Feeling sorry for myself is not going to help. Making excuses isn't going to help. So I'd rather suffer and I would rather feel the pain and actually kind of sadistically enjoy it because, it, you know, pain means you're alive. You know, it means your body is reacting to something. You feel it. And you can use that for, for good, for accomplishment, for mental strength. And so shameless plug here, but I mean, I am wondering, you know, have you tried things like, you know, Ned CBD or, or anything like that? Has anything like that helped for you or I'm, I'm really weird, man. I am. I'm so weird about, I know that it's clean and CBD is very good and it's very healthy, but I'm weird about putting things in, into my system. So I've never done CBD uh, when I had Achilles reconstruction two years ago, I didn't even take the painkillers. I took one pain, one painkiller to help me sleep the night I got home from the surgery. And then my entire recovery, I never took medicine the entire time ever. Well, I'm not, I'm someone who's definitely not into, and I actually said this during the intro, but I'm not into uh, getting high or any of that. And I know that there are different products on the market that will, um, their stuff doesn't. And yeah, it's, it's helped a lot of people through different things like that. So, I mean, definitely something I would recommend. But um, I'm I'm actually curious. So prior to the accident, were you a kid who loved sports, loved running, or any of that? Yeah, I was a swimmer. I started uh, swim lessons when I was two weeks old. You know, I was one of those little babies that my mom took me to the pool and they dunked underwater. And you know, when you're two weeks old, you don't know what the hell's going on, but naturally you pedal yourself to the surface, and you know they make you comfortable with the water. So swimming was always the lifelong thing, and even after the accident, that's not a contact sport. That's the one sport I got to maintain through everything. So I think without swimming, I mean, how, how even, long until you were able to swim after the accident? Uh, it was probably the accident was in June. I was probably back to active. I'd say the the next year, like January, probably. I mean, I don't really remember, but I got right into, um, on but, the but and, and as a kid, as a kid, those six months probably feel like forever. It did. And it was growing up in central Illinois. So, I mean, it's hard winters. So the pool closes in August because it's already getting a little bit chilly and, or, you know, whatever, uh, Labor Day weekend, the pool closes for the year. 
So in high school, I got to swim for the YMCA 16 miles away, and I swam for another high school. So I think a, a kid named Justin and I were the first two ever to be in our high school, but letter in a sport from another high school. So because we swam for the YMCA, that gave credit um, those kids at the YMCA. That was their high school team. Even though everything was through the YMCA, they got to do high school sports for Jacksonville High School. And, you know, we got to represent Jacksonville High School swimming because we were part of that YMCA team as well. But I swam my first race competitively when I was five years old. So I swam from oh, wow. five to 21 competitively minus the, the time off of the accident. So I think uh, I got run over in June of 1983. It would have been summer of 1984 when the pool opened back up for summer swim team again. So I had a year off, but I needed that time. You know, it was a lot of physical therapy, a lot of mental challenges and a lot of physical growth that kind of had to come back. And even though I wasn't growing, I was able to do it, but no baseball couldn't take a chance on a baseball hitting me in the ribs. Couldn't take a chance yeah. on colliding with somebody in second base. No football for sure. And, you know, my hometown was, is 1,500 people. I had 33 in my high school class. Very rural, very varsity blues, if you've ever seen that movie. Yeah. Um, my town is the perfect cross of varsity blues and Doc Hollywood, if you've ever seen those two. Have so, seen Doc Hollywood, okay. Yeah, classic, great movie. Michael J. Fox, Julie Wagner. But, you know, going into high school, still the small town, but I finally started to develop a little bit and we got to travel and do the swim team. And then finally uh, my sophomore year, freshman year, I got to play basketball and I got to play baseball because I was starting to, you know, I wasn't, it, it changed, you know I mean? We're talking four years after an accident. Now they'd seen a lot of strength come back. I wasn't getting much bigger, but I was not so fragile, so to speak. So it slowly started to come back together, but swimming, swimming was great, but I was rambunctious, man. I was, I was, climbing dirt piles and ramping BMX bikes off of stuff when I was a kid before the accident. I was your typical, you know, farm boy running through cornfields, climbing trees and just being an idiot, you know, like every little boy should be. So that's cool, man. It's it's funny that you were saying the whole never give up thing. Cause if you ever heard the outro for the show, it, you know, it's Mark Slaughter, never given up. And it, it is all about that same type of attitude. And he, when he wrote the song, because I met him when he put out the song, which was a nerding out moment for me because I'm the biggest like 80s hair metal guy ever. But um, yeah, he was like, I wrote this song, the solo song before he even put it out. He's like, I did this solo song um, about military members, you know, coming back from injury. Uh, and he's like, I'll call Wounded Warrior Project and they just don't seem to have any interest. You know, do you think there's any way I can get this out to like a military audience? And I kind of helped him out with that at the time. Awesome. I hooked him up with a charity. Um, but yeah, that's what that whole song is about. It's it, about over, coming back from injury and never giving up, never quitting on yourself. So I think you embody that when people hear that outro music to this show. Well, you know, I think that's another reason why Chris and I connected a lot. He's never quit. I'm never give up. They mean exactly the same thing. But, you know, it's, it's his choice of words versus my choice of words. But we both agree with that, you know. And I, I often, you know, my formula for success is four, four points, you know. And they all signify if you get through four points, 
then that means you're not giving up ever. It means you're not stopping. It means you're not quitting. So, you know, one is you gotta, you gotta believe it's possible. You know, as, as I'm older, let me, let me backtrack really quick to tell you where I'm at now. Um, I'm going to be 49 years old in a couple of weeks, you know, and I'm still, I'm probably better than when I ever, when I was 25, you know, I mean, I'm doing more things, physical and more challenges, you know, working these, all these amazing different jobs and getting to travel the country. And I'm doing all that with a total of 35 broken bones in my history, nine, screw, nine screws in my body, five, maybe six, but five that I can get to you right now, major surgeries in my lifetime. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm a broken vessel with a strong mind. You know, a lot of people will say, oh, you know, you remind me of Goggins. I'm nowhere near Goggins, but Goggins and I would agree that you are faced with a challenge because everybody is. Nobody's nobody's given a free pass from challenges in life. Um, it's, it's how you choose to fight those challenges and move forward. So I think that's where we agree. Um, so here I am with, with these things and, you know, I don't let that define me, but I'm reminded every day how I physically feel like you got to get up and go, man, you got to push forward. Cause the one day that I stop moving is the day I'm just going to get so stiff. And so, and you can't come back from that. So torn up inside, you can't come back from that. So, um, for, for people listening, whether it's kids or adults starting over or whatever, you know, my formula um, is believe it's possible. If you believe it's possible, then you've already opened the door to the journey. But if you've already convinced yourself, no, I'm not big enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not strong enough. I'll wait a couple of weeks. You know, like when people say to me, well, I can't come to your gym and train with you. I have to get in shape first, then I'll come to the gym. Well, you have to get in shape first to come to the gym. The gym is where you go to get in shape. Like that's my job right. is to help you accomplish that. So believe it's possible. Then my pretty much my life mantra is kill the fear. Fear is a liar, right? So if you kill the fear, if you just push fear into the corner and you want to do something, try it. If you fail, at least you'll know. You'll never wake up on the last day on your deathbed and think, what if? You'll have no regrets. Kill the fear. Don't be afraid to try something new. And that thing may not work out. A good example is, well, I, I, I don't know. I'm not a very good swimmer, so I, I'm not going to do a triathlon. Well, but you can swim, so do the triathlon. You might find you're a better swimmer than you thought you were. Or getting on the bike and then doing the run, you might realize actually how much you love cycling. So by, by killing the fear of doing a triathlon because of one sport, you actually did the event and you realized, man, I love cycling. I love that part of the race. Put the fear aside, take the challenge, discover something about yourself. Believe it's possible. Kill the fear. The next one, can I say a bad word, right? Like this is like, you no th deal, you've heard this, right? Joe, of course. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> because it's important to me, it's not just discipline, it's discipline, motherfucker. Like emphasis, right? You've yeah. got to have discipline because once you've believed it's possible, once you've killed the fear and started the process, now you've got to be committed to the process. You got to have the discipline. Um, a good example of that today is day 424 days in a row that I've run consecutive days of at least four miles. Some days. I and then as you were telling me before, you know, cause we were speaking about it earlier, um, but before we recorded a few days ago, but yeah. And some of those, as you've told me are ultra marathons up to 50 yeah. miles. Yeah. I mean, I might run 50 miles and the next day I run one mile for a recovery run, but I still got out and ran that day when I could just have a rest day because of what we just accomplished. But I'm averaging four to four and a half miles per day for now, 424 days in a row. So many days I don't want to get up and go run. So many days I want to let my feet rest. 
so many days I'd rather think of something else, right? But the minute I start running, that 30-second mindset, you know, you start something, 30 seconds into it, you're already in the motion of it. You're not going to stop. You're, you're dedicated to it. You know, you're, you're disciplined. So, you know, yeah, I mean, we're doing short distances to long distances, but you have to have the discipline to get to the gym, to stay on the diet, to um, challenge yourself at your job, you know, however many weeks, there might be a Friday, you just don't want to do the podcast today. I'm tired. I don't feel like talking. I do this all the time. But when you're done with that podcast, you didn't want to do it's likely that might have been the best podcast you ever did. You know, sure, yeah. so you got to have discipline. And when you go crushing that discipline, you know, at the end of the day, you start to see the success because discipline inspires results. So believe it's possible. You kill the fear. You um, have that discipline motherfucker. And then at the end of the day, you're basically just looking at yourself and thinking, never give up. Right. I'm never, ever going to give up. You're going to, you're going to put all these things into, into positive position. And the days you don't want to do something, they're typically the best days when you actually go do them because you find reward. It's, it's easy to go run for some people, but the people that running is hard for them, they're going to wake up and not want to go for that run well now they've just they let fear win they let discipline fail them they didn't believe it was possible they gave up right but the day they didn't want to go run and man i did five miles i wanted to do three and i actually ran five miles without stopping for the first time ever it might end up being the greatest run you've ever had and it was the day you didn't want to do it the most so you know all the things we're talking about my injury and my history and everything else i wake up with those kind of four things in my mind every day believe I can run 425, 426, get to that 500th day, you know, believe that you can go make somebody's life better at the gym, go make somebody feel better and feel smarter and have more confidence when they carry their weapon or make them feel better about their defense tactics. If they're going to be ambushed in this crazy world we're living in some days, I don't want to go do those things, but I'm always so proud when I'm done. Cause I know that it was all for purpose, whether it was for me or for someone else. And that's what life's all about creating that purpose. Yeah, I, I think Chris and I spoke about it not too long ago. Like the greatest things in life are not usually the things you get that instant gratification from. You have to really work at it. And then at the end of the day, you could say, man, look what I got done today. It definitely is a good feeling. What well, one of the things that I would think would have to be one of the most rational fears for you, and I'm wondering like how you handled it, would be when you were fighting competitively in MMA. Did did you ever, you know, worry, and, and it seems like you really don't worry, but the idea of re-injuring something that could be, you know, the end of your career? No, because it's one of those things. I think like a football player would be a great example. You're always injured. We it, It's stupid, but it's a bit of a joke. But I say, if you're not always injured with something nagging you, then you're not training hard enough. And nobody wants to be injured. But you're also, if you're not testing the limits and pushing the the element, so to speak, then you're not training hard enough. You're not putting enough effort in. I mean, you're getting punched, kicked, choked, joint lock manipulated all day, every day against people that are better than you, bigger than you, stronger than you. Sometimes you're that guy to other people, but there's always somebody that's just putting a beating on you. So you're always going to be banged up. So getting hurt is part of the process. And a little arrogantly speaking, if that's not okay with you, then it's not your sport. And that's fine. You showed up. You tried it and you figured it out. No regrets. That's what it's all about. But if you're constantly worried about getting injured, then you don't have the right mentality of pushing forward to the next level. So, and I, you know, I mean, I've been injured since I was a little kid and now I'm just trying to prove to the world 
what's another broken bone? What's six stitches in my eyebrow? What's, you know, a jammed up wrist or bent fingers or, you know, a popped elbow. I mean, hell, I've overcome worse than that. And so the worst part is, is not the fact of getting injured. It's when injury sits you on the sideline and then you can't do anything because you have to be smart and recover properly. So I never really let it bother me. And, you know, my story is a little different. I mean, honestly, full disclosure, if you look me up on the internet, I don't have an impressive fight record, but I'm also going to be 49 years old in a couple of weeks. I was fighting no weight classes, you know, no gloves, three, four fights a night, the old school MMA in the late nineties at events that weren't legitimate events. I was a pro fighter because somebody would say, show up, we'll pay you 60 bucks just because they wanted to have these little underground events going on where you owned a gym and my coach owned a gym. And the only way to get real fights in was to say, let's come together and give me your best close to 160. I'll give you my best close to 160. And we'll let these guys fight. And we were doing legitimate real fights with referees, but that wasn't going out into a, you know, certified fight card where you can look up and say that guy's got 300 fights or, and I don't have 300 fights, but there are dudes that do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and even during that time, the the level of elite dudes, the Jeremy Horns, um, you know, the the early Pat Militich guys, that's a friend of our show. You know, yeah. those guys, those guys did events that did have sanctioned credibility. And Jeremy does have three 300 fights, which is ridiculous, legitimate sanctioned fights, you know, but I wasn't fighting on events like he was. I wasn't at his level at that time, but I was a guy that was still trying to help pioneer the sport. And I was going and doing events and getting the shit beat out of me and sometimes winning and sometimes losing. But because of where we were at the time, in the early stages of No Holds Barred before it was called MMA, we were just having fun that we were the crazy guys. You know, we were the ones, you know, I, I had a night one time where we showed up and they say, who's 150? I am, I am. Okay, you guys fight. And next thing you know, they're like, who's, how much do you weigh? I said, I'm like 165 right now, maybe 160. And there's like two dudes left. And they're like, well, how much do you weigh? Well, I weigh 185 and I weigh 195. Well, are you here to fight? No, I'm just here with my brother. And the guy's 195. Well, you're the last two guys left, so you have to fight. So here, everyone got to fight guys within 5, 10 pounds. I'm fighting a guy 35, 40 pounds heavier than me. And just getting the snot beat out of me, but I had the time of my life, you know? Those things didn't happen often, but that's, that's the old school, early ways, you know? And so thank goodness it's sanctioned now and, and we've come a long way, but... <laughs> Um, we weren't really scared. You know, we, we were just wanting to compete and test our skills and Taekwondo versus wrestling and wrestling versus karate and karate versus jujitsu. And, you know, we weren't well-rounded then, but it taught us to become well-rounded. And now here I am today with, you know, a lot of these disciplines under my belt, you know, and, and happy to have the career that I've had. Yeah, I think people don't realize like how underground it was at one time because now it's like everywhere you look, every bar you go to, it's UFC. It's such a mainstream thing. Being into UFC and MMA today is almost like being into baseball. And I even remember in the earliest days of UFC, just as a little kid hearing about it, it was this feared thing. It was what I remember, you know, what John McCain called human cockfighting. Yeah. He was trying to ban and And it's why it was banned in New York City up until relatively recently. There were guys that would pitch in money and buy an old, used, crappy, not good at all, probably really, like realistically the most unsafe boxing ring you could ever fight in, touch the ropes and they collapse type deal. But dudes would, would buy, pull in money and buy an old boxing ring, set it up in the middle of a grocery store parking lot. Everyone circles the ring with their vehicles and then you got a fight night on your hands. And if the cops came and told you to shut it down, great. But, it, you know, a lot of times they'd be like, what are you guys doing? 
oh, we're just putting on a little fight show and, you know, smaller towns, you know, the cops, one or two cops in your town, they're not going to say a lot of stuff. And so a lot of that underground was guys makeshifting events just so they could go fight. You know, think about Kimbo Slice, you know, rest his soul. You know, whether you liked him or not, he was a pioneer because he's the guy that took backyard fighting and said, you know, this stuff's been going on for decades. But now with the advent of YouTube and, and being able to record it on our phones and put it out there to the world, these guys are scrapping like crazy, bare knuckle, no weight classes, beating the crap out of each other with a given boxing set of rules. But that changed the perspective on combat sports in its own way. And now Jorge Masvidal is, you know, he's from those Kimbo days. He's a Miami, South Florida street fighter and became a UFC legend and one of the greatest fighters of all time. Now he's doing backyard brawl fights, sending people on private jets to undisclosed locations in Florida, <laughs> filming this stuff, and now you buy it on his website. And he's bringing this stuff, real life, backyard fighting coming back. He even just had a tag team MMA where these dudes two-on-one were kneeing and kicking and punching each other. And, you know, we've seen tag team grappling, but we've never seen legit backyard tag team MMA. So the old school, you know, that I kind of came up in, is really full circling right now. And people are loving it because they understand the sport better now. You know, they're not afraid of it. So it's crazy, crazy times back then and right now, both. Yeah, I would think back then there was probably just the legal uh, issue of what if someone dies, you know, just stuff like that. Yeah, you know, we were we were Taekwondo fighters, my teammates and I. And, you know, we followed our rules and we had our liabilities and we were members of gyms like most karate kids were back in the day. And, you know, but if we wanted to wrestle, you just didn't go to some bar and put up a ring and wrestle. It, it, back then it was old school kickboxing, Chuck Norris, you know, PKA, which is where I got my pro kickboxing debut, the American kickboxing system. You know, you didn't even kick in the legs, you kicked above the waist and you had two or three minute rounds and you had to kick a certain number of times or you lost a point. So, you know. The, the legalities were something that we didn't have to really think about because we were so fixated on Taekwondo is the best. Kickboxing is the best. The wrestler thought they were the best. The Kung Fu guy thought he was the best. But when it started to come full circle, one of the first fights I ever had was an MMA fight against a friend of mine because we didn't know anybody else that was training MMA like we were. And we were an exhibition, um, intermission, you know, show and tell really fighting each other at a kickboxing event. People were like, what are they doing? Why are they on the ground hitting each other? And one night I did that event and I won with a leg lock. And another night I got choked out in a guillotine choke. But we were just exhibition, you know, intermission fighters because there was nowhere to go do that kind of thing because nobody knew how to, how to fund it, how to have legalities in it. Or if they did, it was only a major show, like hook and shoot in the Midwest. Um, King of the Cage, Gladiator Challenge, all those old school events. I mean, that really pioneered everything before there was a UFC. So it was it was really weird to see it all develop. And, you know, people like, you know, McCain that just didn't understand it and wanted to have a platform. And we were all good guys. You know, we were good guys and good girls trying to say, if I'm a Taekwondo fighter, you, I'm, gonna... I'm I'm curious when you say good girls, there, there were women doing it back then, because I always think of like Ronda Rousey and, you know, Liz Carmucho, I've had to interview you, you think of that as the beginning of women's MMA, at least for me. And that wasn't that long ago. Yeah, there were, there were women. The problem was there were very few women. So the women that would get on cards, I mean, 
you know, and people didn't really pay airfare. They didn't fly fighters in from Boston to Chicago to, to do an event. Nobody had the money for that kind of stuff. So the girls that were able to travel, if, if it was, let's just say it was Lisa and Monica, Lisa and Monica probably fought each other eight times because if there weren't anybody else, they were the two girls that showed up to an event and, you know, they fought each other over and over and over again until people started to see women fighting, then another girl would try it. Now Lisa's in the mix. And so now Lisa's going to fight Monica, but now she's not going to fight Taylor. And it, it, you know, we've seen how women's MMA has grown. Yeah, I was going to say, keep, keep it real with me here. Yeah, I would think the early women's MMA fighters are not these like attractive women like Rose and Amy Yunus. Like these are probably some like uh, pretty masculine looking women. I would imagine you you had very very tough women. You know, I'm going to like kind of leave it like that. But you're okay. thinking about the girl that was elite in Taekwondo and she was super pretty. But you know, she's she's also got guts and she's thinking like, man, I'm going to try that wrestling i want to try jujitsu and get on the ground and now she's inspired because you know she's the cute girl on the mat doing taekwondo tournament or a karate tournament or even kickboxing for that matter i mean we saw a lot of beautiful women come up through the ranks in kickboxing and when las vegas really became that that realm of you know we're going to film women's kickboxing reality tv shows and such you're looking at you know your early gina carano's Gina's been around for 25 years. Nobody knew who she was until she was in the UFC. Unless yeah, she and, and it kickboxing. looks amazing. And that's why it was such an anomaly for people because yeah. it is, you know, it, it is strange to mainstream America, mainstream worldwide that they're like, wow, such an attractive woman would do this because the stereotype of like a woman who goes into MMA does not look like Gina Carano. Right. It, it was relative. I mean, you know, back then you had the tough ones and the, the masculine ones, if we want to go that route, which is fine. They were badasses and they were great people. But you also had the really pretty ones that didn't care if their lip got busted up and they weren't putting lip gloss on before a fight, you know, but they were naturally like, dang, you know. But for us, it was we appreciated the athlete, you know, nobody can help what they look like. But we love the value of the effort they put in. And so those early school women, man, you know, whether they were good looking or not. They were tough as balls and they had guts. And that's what we respected because it took a lot for us to do what we were doing, just trying to prove that our art was the best. I was trying to represent Taekwondo and kickboxing. And, you know, the other dude's trying to represent wrestling and Kung Fu or whatever. So for these girls that come in and basically only have their traditional martial art, boxing or kickboxing, but have the guts to come in and like do a full on fight and sometimes a tournament, no weight classes three fights in a night to win the, the championship that night, you know, six man tournament, absolutely insane. And so it was fun. It was very, very uncommon, but they were out there and they were awesome. Was there any type of, I mean, I'm going to assume there wasn't actual drug testing, but was there any, uh, I guess like code of honor with this stuff? Because I know you're a drug free guy and, you know, people on HGH and steroids, and, and this goes into the whole debates we're having now with transgenders in sports, if they're on something, it's a it's an unfair advantage. I don't think there's any way to uh, there's any way to, to deviate from that. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm very proudly, very significantly and very supportive of, of the community being a drug free athlete. I've never taken performance enhancing. I, I just don't believe in it. I don't do anything to to try to give me longevity. I just believe in my skill set. You know, the, the irony is it's, it's a lot worse now because it's prevalent and it's highly accepted. It's, it's highly accepted. 
by most athletes. And I'm sure you know, I mean, now I'll, I can tell you this, which is really fucking crazy, I feel like, man. I go on Instagram and, um, you know, there's people who, you know, because SARMs is big now, which is yeah. not, which I think it's sort of legal. It's sort of not legal. I think it depends where and stuff. But you'll see these fitness guys and sometimes women and sometimes the women don't even look like they're on anything. And they're in their stories saying, message me to buy SARMs. And I right. mean, it really is rampant because some people might not be taking, I guess, the air fingers quote hard stuff of like the actual steroids, but they're on a lot of people are on something. Yeah. You know, I started back in 1993. And so I think, you know, is obviously running rampant in the bodybuilding communities and some of the fitness professional aspects and then high level, very high level professional athletes, football, baseball, the people that could afford it and the people that could pay coaches that understood what they were doing because technology wasn't readily available. There wasn't YouTube, there wasn't Instagram, Facebook, where you can do your own research now and figure stuff out, mix and match your own farms and, and you kind of figured something out. So, you know, with us, I'm sure that there were people around us that were doing it. And I'll admit I was probably quite naive to it, but I never really recognized if somebody was. The funny thing is, is like we were doing jujitsu in 1993, 94, 95, when it was first introduced wholeheartedly because of Hoist Gracie in 1993 in the UFC. And, you know, we were rolling. I've been doing jujitsu since 1993, a really long time. And I had some off times where I focused on other things, but I've stayed pretty consistent through most of it. And the funny thing is, is we didn't feel the need because jujitsu works. You'd have the big football player come in. You'd have the big, strong, athletic guy come in and think, well, look at my muscles. Look at my size and my strength. I'm twice the size of you. I'm just going to smash you. And jujitsu works. The smaller person with better positioning, better leverage, and better knowledge knows how to use the ground to stall and defeat the larger opponent. And, you know, we didn't have to do the steroids because it was so pure at the time the fact that we could get taken down and use that against them or take someone down and use that against them. There wasn't a competition of having to, well, I have to get big also, you know? And so the, the success and the truth of jujitsu kind of covered the need for performance enhancing substances where today you look at the grappling industry and, you know, there's a running joke where like everybody at the highest level is juicing. Why? Because if they're all going to do it, then I'm going to do it too. Because naturally, exactly. because naturally, fighter A is truly one of the greatest fighters of all time and would never need a performance-enhancing drug because his jiu-jitsu is so ridiculous and sick that he could destroy anybody that he'd want to at the highest level, right? Win the highest tournament. But if he's in an eight-man bracket and all seven other dudes that are within his realm of awesomeness are going to be juicing up on something, and he just doesn't have the stamina because they're on the, the machine drugs per se, you know, the, the stamina enhancers, the strength enhancers, the recovery enhancers, then he's going to have to do it because otherwise he's not going to be able to showcase the amazing skills that he has and be the better athlete because they're cheating. I think they're cheating, you know, um, you know, and I'd argue with people that to, to this day, if, if you're all going to do it, then you're all on the same platform. I guess it's okay. I guess. But if you're all not going to do it and you're all drug free, that's okay. But we can't have a mix and match. Like I, it's got to be a level playing yeah. field to prove how good you really are. And I'm never yeah, going to be, there's gotta be like, 
Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I'm just gonna say, there, there should be like, no, it's fine. I'm, I'm interrupting you, but uh, yeah, I mean, there should be like a steroid league and a non-steroid league. The, the right fact on. is though, people will always say they don't like, you know, the enhanced stuff, but in, at the end of the day, I think people sometimes don't know what they really do want because there were years where bodybuilding, right, went against the steroids and people looked at these guys on stage and they're like, oh, this isn't that impressive. I, I could achieve this. People right. want to see something that's superhuman or the people, you know, everybody will tell you, oh, steroids and baseball is bullshit. But all of us watched the Sammy Sosa sure. and Mark McGuire home run race. And that was all brought to you by steroids. It wouldn't have happened otherwise. Well, look at Mark McGuire was taking, I don't know, forgive me for saying it wrong, Androstein, Androstenin, everybody just called it Andro. Andro was an over-the-counter, you know, supplement that you'd buy at GNC, but it was the closest thing to a steroid that you could legally buy and put in your system. And Mark McGuire was using that early on, and it just gave him incredible gains and, you know, powerlifting abilities and stamina and bat speed when he was swinging and he was growing. But even he reached a point where he plateaued and he had to take it to the next level. And then people realized what Andrew was doing for Mark McGuire. And then they realized, wow, that actually really gave him performance enhancement. And then it became an illegal substance. You couldn't use it as a professional athlete. But for the longest time, it wasn't because it wasn't regulated. Nobody really saw what it was doing for athletes until this crazy high profile athlete said, this is what I'm taking. I'm not taking steroids. I'm taking Andrew. Now they look into Andro and say, oh, my God, that's gains like crazy. And now we can't just let everybody do this because it's going to crash the system of athletics, you know. And so now you've got USADA who's looking at everything that's coming out more than they ever did. And all these sanctioning bodies through, from the Olympics through bodybuilding to, to MMA and everything else. But, um, you know. If it's allowed, I'll, I probably can't argue it. I'm not going to be that kind of douchebag about it. But if it's illegal, then don't do it. You know, yeah. if, if I, smoke, if I smoke was going to say, I think illegal, the problem, then don't do it. But if it's legal, then do it till your heart's content. Yeah, I, I think the problem right now is, um, and the way I've seen it, is it's actually like the scientists versus the scientists because you have the scientists who work for the UFC, right, who are regu- who are trying to figure out what is not on their radar that could be used as performance enhancing. And then you probably have, this is why a guy like John Jones keeps getting popped because he's probably working with a team of people saying, Hey, no one's going to be able to detect this. And that's why we keep seeing John Jones pop for a picogram of this and a picogram of that. And I don't, I personally don't believe that he's taking some whey protein that something is in. He's probably taking something And it's probably these people working with him who are also legitimate scientists saying like, hey, this is off the radar. This will not be detected. Well, you have that problem, but you also have, you know, John Jones. I think he's the greatest natural talent that's ever existed. I agree. He's amazing. I love the guy. Oh, God. Typically, you're an amateur fighter for two to three years. Then you turn pro on a very low level show. And if you're good, you work your way up through shows until hopefully you get to one fighting championship, Bellator, UFC, like the big leagues, right? You're looking at five years to go through that part of the process as a professional fighter, just trying to get recognized by the big time guys, minimum. So that's eight years of your life and nobody even still knows who you are unless you know, you're know you in a circle doing, doing work, teaching, things like that. John Jones made it into the UFC and won the UFC championship belt in three years in the average amateur time frame. 
And I mean, that's never happened before like that. I mean, it's absolutely insane. And I, I respect his athleticism so much that I, I'm like in love with watching him fight. <laughs> he's the but, best, yeah. But the person that he is and the mistakes that he's made, I want him to be such a better leader. You know, his problem with the performance enhancing stuff is that he's been caught with cocaine and he's been caught with other things. And, you know, he gatewayed himself into other more serious issues. And so the problem with him is that people will say, well, if he's taking that stuff, of course, he's taking a performance enhancing drug. Like, why wouldn't he be taking something else? And so, you know, the profile of getting caught with this, now they're going to expect and look at him for that. And he's just made bad choices. I don't think he's a bad human. I just, no. I'm, I'm upset because when I want to respect the guy, I, I'm upset. But I, I mean, he's the greatest natural talent, not greatest fighter of all time, but I think he's the greatest natural talent there ever was. Here's another problem. Fighters will trust people that they don't know. And so I could be the pro fighter and I could meet you through a relative or a coach or a training partner, and I could become a very solid acquaintance with you. And because you've done great work with these people that I know, all right, I'll put you on board. You're on my team and you know, you're going to do my nutrition for me. You're going to give me these supplements and these powders and whatever. I'm feeling a lot better. And unfortunately, what I don't know is that you're putting shit in my supplements and in my food that I don't know you're putting in there. We're getting a lot of these steroid uh, enhancement, you know, these trainers that are giving fighters stuff that when a fighter says, I had no idea that I was taking that. There's a lot of times that I truly believe that's true. They don't know what their coach is giving them. So they're, they're trusting people they shouldn't be trusting. And that's a big problem right now is the fighter's naivety of the people that they're working closely with. Yeah. Yeah. The interesting thing with Jones that you were saying about him as a person is that there seems to be, uh, you know, kind of a duality within him in that, you know, you go on his Instagram and, and also hear his interviews on Joe Rogan and the guy does some like remarkable things. He, he does some great volunteer work that he's put out there. Um, he, he seems to be like a genuinely good person at times, but then you hear that he is involved in like a hit and run accident with a pregnant woman and he's got, uh, you know, drugs in his car, in his vehicle. And I think that's probably one of the reasons people should never, um, and we talk about this on the show sometimes with Chris, I think this is maybe more my perspective, but hero worship, because I think we're all flawed human beings. And I think you can admire certain qualities in someone, but if you worship them or you put them on a pedestal as an idol, every single one of us is going to let you down because we all have, uh, you know, different vices or, or different things in our life that other people might not respect. But it, I don't think it negates those positive aspects of a person uh, where every single one of us is a flawed human being. And that's why you really can't, um, you know, worship anyone besides God himself, however you worship. You know, there, there's uh, respect, right? I mean, I've done way more excellent and way more good in my life, but we all have demons and we all we all do things that, you know, like you said, other people aren't going to agree with. We make bad choices. We make mistakes. And. Some person might think you're the worst person on the planet for that. Another person might be like, you know, well, that guy's sick or he, he, she deals with her demons that way. And, you know, yeah, like you said, the pedestal. I, I really think that at the end of the day, most people are good people. We just have bad moments, right? Um, a long time ago, I was working for a retail company and I had to fire one of my employees because he stole from, from the store. And you know, I remember saying to him, he was one of my favorite employees. It broke my heart because he was one of my favorite kids that worked for me. And I, you know, I, I, I had a first 
parent moment of my life. I wasn't even close to becoming a parent yet. <laughs> but I remember looking at him and saying, you know, the choices you made, this doesn't make you a bad person. I have to fire you. You can never come to this store ever again. You know, you're, I'm, we're not going to press charges, but we could like think about that. But this doesn't make you a bad person, the choices you made to steal this stuff. But hopefully from today forward, it makes you a better person, right? You're not a bad guy. You're a good guy that made a bad choice. So it doesn't make you a bad person, but hopefully it makes you a better person. You're never going to steal ever again. And you're going to be a leader for other people at some point in your life, whether it's family or coworkers or whatnot, or employees of your own. And you're going to take this experience and it's going to make you a better person for it. So the problem with, with Jones is that we see him make these mistakes, but he keeps continuing to make mistakes. Yeah. But I think where people don't give him credit, and I'm probably one myself, is his demons. You know, he grew up in a family where he's the most talented fighter of all time, one of the greatest arguable champions in UFC history. But he's competing with two brothers that are both NFL athletes. He's <laughs> a family of monster brothers. I mean, just ginormous dudes that are at the highest echelon level of their sport. You got, yeah, they have like Superman DNA, that family. I mean, it's crazy, that family, you know, their mom and dad, what they developed. And you're trying to compete with family and you're trying to support family. And the whole world's looking at you like the greatest icon of all time. And that's a lot of pressure for people. And, you know, you're, you're getting drawn here to do this press conference and to do that interview and to go to that gym and train and to come to this gym and do this then the UFC wants you doing exactly what they want you to do because it's part of their contract, no questions asked. And this guy's getting pulled in a million directions, but he's one human being. And there's no sleep and there's exhaustion and there's body pain, there's mental pain. And he's trying to coat that. He's making bad choices with substances and you know he's getting in trouble for making bad choices, but it's his coping mechanism because he's got demons. He's a human being, you know? And then he's getting injured or he's worried about the guy that he's got to go fight next. So maybe I better take a couple of these things because I am the greatest of all time in some regards. But if I don't take that thing that helps me recover better, that doesn't help me sleep better. That doesn't help me um, get less injured when I go through my training, then how am I going to beat him? Because everybody loses fights. Everybody has an opportunity to win. Everybody has an opportunity to lose. And I'm not going to be John Jones if I lose. And so I've got to do whatever it takes. Whatever it takes isn't always great decisions. And that's where we got to kill the fear. You got to believe it's possible. You got to have your discipline. You got to kind of follow your steps and your credo. And, but he, he's at a different level with a whole lot of pressure. And it doesn't make it right. But I understand it a little bit more from a mature aspect. I couldn't imagine the pressures he's under. Me getting credit for being a pro fighter all the time is like a dream come true for me. I don't touch the surface of somebody like John Jones. Imagine what that guy's dealing with on a daily basis. So yeah. I wish that he went and got therapy. I wish he trusted other people. I wish he trusted uh, a separate group of people so that his great coach and his great team could just do what they needed to do. He needed to have a different outlet. And I don't know if he's ever, ever going to recover from it all, but you know, people will not look at him for anything less than the trouble he's making and not realize he's a human with a lot of pressure on his shoulders from family to television, radio, podcast, every angle you can think of, that dude needs help. And he needs to find it. He doesn't need to um, douse it with substances, you know? But I think that's really the, the truth about him, in my opinion. 
Yeah, I agree. And I also think people on the outside don't realize you see a guy like John Jones and you think, man, like he has everything you could possibly want. He's one of the most accomplished guys in the sport that he, you know, dreamed of being a success in. And yeah, none of that is, I think if you don't have good relationships in your life, a good relationship with God himself or, you know, however you worship, uh, yeah, you're always going to have those demons. I mean, just last night I was speaking with my dad about Artie Lang, you know, and it, it's pretty crazy to think because I just I, I heard about this more recently. I mean, Artie was on the most successful radio show in the world, one of the funniest guys I would say to ever live. And from what I know, he's currently living in Florida with his mom, because if he is not with his mom and not in that world of comedy clubs and doing what he was doing, he will relapse. Yeah. And, you know, people would think this is a guy making millions upon who was making millions upon millions of dollars. Um, that is not going to um, fix yourself. Right. You know, it's it's we all battle our demons in a different degree. And I think everybody copes in a certain way. And I don't think Chris would mind me saying this, but you look at Chris fresh out of Benghazi and he spent his life on Twitter and Facebook and yeah. <laughs> Instagram. And he argued with everybody and he fought the political fight and he fought the system so hard and it made him depressed and it made him tired and it made him not the guy that we know today, not the real Chris. It made him fake Chris, you know, to me. And when he was able to finally wake up and say, you know, I've got to stop. I mean, I'm one man. I can't change the entire world and I can have my beliefs and I can be mad at people for what they did to my team and what they did for me. And they left us behind, but fighting with remote strangers and thousands of people every day because they're Hillary supporters or, you know, they're so-and-so supporters. It's making me not the person that I am. And it's made me the person that I never wanted to be. And, you know, he got depressed and he got angry and, you know, he, he battled, man. And he worked himself into back to being one of the most ridiculous dudes. I mean, you talk about <laughs> him and I, you know, get done teaching a battle line course in Chicago last year, we ordered my favorite pizza in Chicago and we watched pets, <laughs> you know, two guys that are supposedly these badass tactical badass <laughs> fighter guys. He's a war hero. And we're sitting on the couch eating pizza, drinking a beer, and we're watching pets together. You know, that's Chris. That's the Chris that a lot of people didn't know was inside of himself when he was internet battling, right? Um, but the demons took over for him at that point. And he stood up and he fought his demons. And now we have this great Chris that's the, the motivational speaker, the incredible instructor that he is, hilarious. The athlete, still an athlete running every day, doing his thing. And um, But, you know, it's... And, and by the way, I'll say, and, and with this show, he's, you know, because Chris, I think at first was a little uneasy about it because he was like, well, I've never hosted a show like this. I mean, he's gotten really good at it. I think like the first few episodes, it takes a while to have that chemistry and to get a, a, a feel for how to do this on the other end, because he'd be on that. He was on the end as the guy being interviewed for so many years. I mean, I really, you know, you always say like, not every show is going to be a home run, but I really feel like all the recent shows with Chris, like, and not even just recent, probably the past four or five months at this point, everything post-pandemic uh, stuff, where we've been able to do this with better sound quality, like, I think they've almost all been home runs. I've been happy with all of them. And I think, the, and that's why the audience has grown. So I would add that, too, to his, to his um, you know, uh, resume. Yeah, it's incredible. And I've learned a lot from him 
and handling certain situations and feeling comfortable when you're compromised. And, you know, we do our training. We do, we don't do fantasy camp stuff. We do very real world. This could happen to you tonight or tomorrow. And for me, I would often look at Boone and I look at him and I think these two guys are some of the greatest instructors, firearms instructors, combatives, real world experts that have ever lived. These guys survived some wicked things. And how do I, how do I fit into their circle? Like, why am, why am I their guy? You know, I feel the same way. <laughs> and I mean, when there are so many people that could be their guy and as time has gone on, you know, you know, there's a, there's a good example. Uh, we were doing a protection job in South Florida and I was working with my team and I'm looking at these, you know, these other five dudes that I'm working with and they're truly elite personal protection folks, you know, and I'm like, why am I here? You know? And then our boy, Ben Morgan once told me, he said, you know, I was on a team with the state department overseas and we had a, a team of five or six guys. And he said, you know, that guy over there was, was an incredible shooter. That guy over there was awesome mechanic. If the car broke down, he'd get that thing up and going again. And they were all tactical and they all had combative. Like everybody shared a skill set, right? And he said, we had one guy on the team that just was kind of useless. And nobody really understood why this dude was on our team. You know, when we're all pretty, at least skilled, good enough to do whatever's going to happen to us. And Ben Morgan said, you know, there was a time where we got in a pretty weird spot. We just say it was a very weird spot. And we came up to a group of individuals and they spoke a language that none of us spoke. And we didn't know what, what was going to happen to us. We're overseas. Or did we find ourselves in a really bad spot? If we can't communicate, you know, what if they just fire down on us right away? Well, the guy on the team that was really just okay and kind of fairly useless spoke their language. So he ended up being the best communicator on the team. And at the time, that's what they needed. At the time, they needed the best communicator on the team. And it made me think about myself where if we ran out of ammunition or if we got into a point where there's a crowd of people and we can't just start shooting at our enemies, you know, doing personal protection details because it's a crowd or something, you know, everybody can fight, but they're going to be looking at me to be the one that can fight because I'm the best fighter of our team. So whether I'm mediocre or just okay at everything else, I'm, I'm good enough to be on the team or I wouldn't be there. They're not going to sacrifice yeah. their lives. So I had to appreciate that first and foremost. And then I realized when it comes down to it, hopefully it never does. I have my job to do and I will do it for my boys to the highest of extent. And so Chris's leadership and seeing him come through and, and, kind of regaining a new confidence within himself to be able to teach and do the podcast and everything else really allowed me to find a little bit more in mind, you know, cause my demons every day, I'm not good enough. Um, how come that person stopped talking to me this week? Why, why are they liking his posts on Instagram, but not my posts? And, Which by the way, know, is so stupid when you think about it. There's so much drama in this world that, you know, the only time i think in this in the span of this uh year and a half we've done this show that i ever got into a minor argument with chris it involved something with instagram and we, we were like this is fucking stupid yeah. you know it really is how social media creates drama i i i'm not a like hound i mean i could care less if people like what i do i put my stuff out there to share with my loved ones that are far away from me and i put it out there because if i can motivate one person or inspire them then i did my job and I get a lot of emails from strangers saying, thank you. And that, that means the world to me. But when I have a group of best friends per se, and I'm like, everybody's liking everybody else's shit, but they're not liking my shit right now. Did I just piss off my best friend? And I'm like, no, man, 
you know, because maybe He's my probably out living life. <laughs> well, or, you know, if I have 5,000 people on my Instagram, I don't see every post because every time somebody posts, it pushes through the bottom. Well, maybe they just didn't see my stuff because their feed is feeding through from when, you know, and I'm like, you're overthinking it. They're your friends for a reason. Stop acting like a little bitch. And so, but you know, the demons set in because, you know, I, I don't need approval, but I want to be good with my loved ones. And I'm like, fucking social media, pick up the phone and call them if they're your best friend, you know? Like, yeah. So like the they, smartest people that I know, I genuinely like some of the smartest people I know, I should say, are people I went to high school with who are actually like, I would say the way I would put it, like low low profile, but very big bank account. Like a lot of the guys I know work in finance and all that, and they are not on Instagram. They're not on Twitter. They could give a fuck less. They have their wife, some of them kids, and you know, they're good friends and they do not care about outside approval. They don't work in a business that needs to be promoted to the outside world. And they are very content. I don't know when Facebook came out, but I'm, I'm going to say maybe I'll put it in this story. Like I'm, as I said, I'm going to be 49 years old soon. I spent at least 30 years of my life without Facebook and Instagram and people had to pick up the phone or write you a letter or send an email. If, and that was only started in 1993, like people getting their own email started in 1993, pretty much. And I mean, it's like, we, we lived happy, fulfilled lives without anybody knowing what the hell we were doing, but the right people knew what we were doing because they were involved with your shenanigans at that moment. And I often think if I could get away from social media and just kind of live like that again, I'd be, I'd be really happy. But Facebook, one reason why that I stay on Facebook more than any other reason is I love to wake up every day and see whose birthday it is. Because that's everyone's got their day. It's their special day. And I love to tell people happy birthday. And then if I don't go on Facebook the rest of the day, at least I hopefully got me saying happy birthday, Ian, you know, put a smile on their face. But it's not me, will, though, because I'm not even on Facebook. Right, but people will say happy birthday to you. Sure, yeah. But then they'll go argue politics for 17 hours of their day. And I'm like, oh, Which my God, worst, yeah. do something else. You know, go for a run. Go, go, go eat a pizza. <laughs> I mean, something, you know. So, and, and I'm sure like a lot of the people, right, who are really active politically on Facebook that you've known for years, you probably didn't know their every opinion on everything prior to all this. I mean, there's so many people who... Actually, during this whole, you know, past year with the, the pandemic stuff, there, there are people who have had friends for decades who are no longer friends with each other because they don't share the same political opinions. Yeah, and nobody, nobody cares that, how you voted. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's really like something that wouldn't have made a difference. And it's not even as much how much you voted because now everything is politicized. Yeah. Are you for Black Lives Matter? What are your opinions on Antifa? I mean, there's a million things going on. And if you don't match up on something, there are people like, well, I don't need this guy in my life, even though you've known this person for years and you know they're a person of great character, even if you don't agree with them. You got to, I mean, has has there ever been a human being that didn't get in an argument with their mom and their dad? Now, granted, some families are flawed and there's some really shitty moms and dads out there. But for the most part, I'd say like the family dynamic, you know, you're, or even, and to be even better example, again, there's bad moms and, and dads, but it's like, think about me with my daughter. There's been days my daughter has annoyed me. There's plenty of days I've annoyed my daughter, right? <laughs> there's, there's days where I'll tell her yes or no, and she might not agree with the decision I made to let her do something or not. But 
would I ever just want to argue with her about politics or, you know, like, does she have to think exactly the way I think? No, she's my daughter. I love that kid. And with, with everything that I have, when you spend so much time with somebody, of course, you're going to have an argument. Of course, you're going to be a little bit tired of them, a little bit annoyed of them. And then what do you do? You leave the room or you go hang out with a different person. Or, you know, if you're married, you know, and your wife's like, man, I had enough of you today. I'm going to go watch TV in bed. Okay. That's what married people do. They get annoyed with each other a little bit, but you don't go on the internet and fight with each other about it. You know, you don't, I don't think like if my wife was a Democrat and I'm a Republican, like I married her for so many reasons other than like what her political affiliation is. For the record, that's not the way it is in my family. That's just an sure. example. I mean, we agree. I'm unfortunate. I really, truly married my best friend and we agree, I'd say on 98% of most things in our life. But if there's those moments where like, Benny, I've had, I've had enough of you today, you know, and I was like, all right, I'll go for a run or, you know, I'm going to go sit out in the garage in my man cave or whatever. Why do people lose friendships over that dumb shit? Because you're friends for a reason. And like you said, back in the day, you probably didn't even know that stuff. But now it's life's mission to get on Facebook for seven hours a day. And if you think seven hours is bullshit, go on your smartphone and click on screen time. And you'll be amazed that you spent three hours and 22 minutes on Instagram and four hours and 10 minutes on Facebook. And it'll dial it down to the seconds how much time you spend on the internet doing whatever it is the hell you're doing so and then and then for some people the screen time as a whole when they're not doing that they're watching tv you know and it's like you wonder why people are so depressed i think it is a huge huge part of it they're not active physically they're not out in nature you know where like where you live being by the there's great things to see in nature everywhere where you live it's the beach you know, by me, I have beaches and all that. There's state parks near here. If you live somewhere in Arizona, it's like there's so much beautiful stuff to see in person. And we are not we are living a very spectator life. Many of us where everything is just on here or on the TV. And uh, yeah, I think life is not a spectator sport. You got to go out there and do things. I you know I'm on this awesome, fulfilling running streak that I don't know when's going to quit. But I just read about a guy who did a run streak for 41 years, didn't miss a day for like 15,800 days. And I'm not going to live that long, but I'm inspired by that. Right? They're like, but hey, you never know. Right. But, but every day I'm like, what animal am I going to see today? Cause I see alligators and snakes almost every day on a daily run. And close to where I live now, there's this bear has introduced himself into our communities and people are seeing a legit black bear on their ring doorbells. It's getting close enough to the front doors of houses at nighttime that the ring doorbell's going off. It's not the UPS dude or Amazon guy or girl. It's a black bear. And he's like walking through neighborhoods, working his way over to this giant preserve that we have. It's a beautiful, great big preserve. So today I'm out running. I'm like, man, what if I see the bear today? You know, like that's going to scare the shit out of me, but that's going to be awesome because I've seen otters. (laughs) I've seen, I've come face to face with coyotes on trails. Uh, rattlesnakes. I mean, everything. So I carry a knife on my, on my belt, you know, my, my gun or on my gun belt. My guy, I don't run my gun with my uh, running belt. Um, yeah, I was wondering that that's gotta be, yeah. I, 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 I know guys that run with their weapons. I'm like, man, it's way too much weight and uncomfortable and awkward, but I carry my I phone. You know, with belt. Yeah. Right. But I carry a pocket knife for, for many reasons, but I'm, you know, a, a pocket knife's not going to save me from a rattlesnake per se but it could save me from a coyote or a bobcat or a bear, at least to do enough damage to help me taking more damage than I'm obviously going to receive if I'm attacked. But if I need to cut my bandana up that I always carry with me and use it to 
tie off a wound or something. So I always have a knife on me for, for any reason. But today I was like, man, if I see a bear, I, I feel guilty hurt, hurting any animal, but I also don't want to die myself. So, but today I'm running along this preserve and I'm like, man, the bear was like a half a mile from here spotted yesterday. So like he could be around here anywhere right now. And so, you know, I'm, I'm out here thinking, look at, look at the, the stuff I get to see on my daily runs. And I'm not on the couch watching CNN, you know, I'm, I'm living an adventure from 30 minutes to an hour and a half, two hours every day, depending on the length of my run. And I bought a one wheel a couple of weeks ago. So I'm on my one wheel cruising around town. It's the greatest thing I've ever bought in my life. It's so freaking fun. So every day I got to ride my one wheel for a little bit. You know how much fun that is to get on this electric skateboard that I've had crashes and road rash like you wouldn't believe in the last two weeks. But even with crashes and more pain and and cuts and bruises, I'm like having the time of my life on this thing. And I'm not sitting on the couch. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not arguing with somebody. I'm not on the news getting sucked into their false bullshit at the same time. So there's a big world out there and an awesome life to be lived. And when I go on social media, I'm trying to spread the good love and the good vibes and, you know, hopefully getting people to be more active and getting people to, you know, if you don't like what I do, don't follow me. That, that saves you not having to worry about it. But there's that old thing of like, well, you don't ever like my posts and you don't ever like what I'm sharing, but you're following me, aren't you? So there's a reason why you're paying attention. That's enough for me. Whether it's the haters or it's the supporters, knowing that you're following me, that's enough for me. Um, but people need to get out and experience a little bit more and then share that with the world. Then use your platform of social media for the good vibes. And Chris has become amazing at that. Boone is amazing yeah. at that. The instructors that we work with are sharing responsible posts and, and excellent training standards and the fun that comes along with it. And, you know, I'm trying to kind of be like that in, in my world. So, you know, but we, we all have to push the demons aside. But I think the demons are fueled and fed by the negativity that we sit in front of. And that's TV and, and social media. So there's got to be balance. Yeah. And we all got to find balance. Yeah, no, it, it's it's all uh it's fueled by us is exactly as you're saying, because of the fact that I know Jack Murphy said this to me once, and I've realized even what with what I have to title episodes, uh, Jack went on a rant a while back uh, years ago, and he was saying, I think it was just frustration from him where he, you know, because he does great research for these articles he does. And he says, like, guys, I could write an amazingly well-researched piece on China. I could give you the work cited. I could tell you all, all my sources of where I got it. And he's like, and I know for an absolute fact, more of you guys are going to click on an article that I wrote about some douchebag at the mall dressed as an army ranger. He's like, so don't tell me that's not what you guys want to read because that's what you click on. I, right. He's like, I see the numbers. And I even see with, with me, I have to do it sometimes with these titles. If I have an episode that's titled like Inspiration with this person, it's going to get way less clicks than when I have an episode like recently Eddie Gallagher admits to war crimes, people, you know, which is, it's negative, but it's, it was a true, we're, we're basing this off an interview. I'm not putting out fake news. We played the sound clip, but I know people click on that because it's drama. People love drama. It, that episode got a ton of plays and I am not surprised why. So I have to be more creative with my titling and hopefully like Chris always says, we're kind of like clickbaiting them into positivity. Uh, he's like, cause sometimes you click on this stuff and it's all negative and doom and gloom and that's not what we do. 
but it'll be a little sprinkle of that to get you to hear the more positive things, hopefully. Um, you know what I wanted to ask you about, because um, you mentioned it before about how you kind of got into this whole world. And I don't think I asked you in the first uh, interview we did a while back, um, how did you get to know Chris and Boone? So in 2003, I opened up my gym, Tampa Combat, and I still have the name, but it's not a gym anymore. But Tampa Combat was in Tampa Bay, one of the few, if not one of the first, but one of the few like full on MMA gyms where we had a wrestling coach, a kickboxing coach, a boxing coach, a kickboxing coach, and an MMA coach. And I handled three of those, but I brought in a wrestler and a jujitsu guy to teach because I, I had some of those things, but I didn't feel like I was at a level where that could be what I brought. But I'd had MMA fights and I'd had a lot of kickboxing in my traditional martial arts career. So I started Tampa Combat and was having a great run with it. And one day, Boone and his family walked in the front door and I, I meet this guy and I, and I see he's got a couple kids with them and you know, they were, and so this was pre Benghazi. This was 2003. So this was eight years before Benghazi. Yeah. Right. Or nine, eight or nine years before Benghazi. And so, you know, they were like, well, we have a few questions. We've, we've been checking out gyms and, and, you know, we've trained a little bit of judo and we, you know, we're a martial arts family and we've done kickboxing. And I mean, they've, he and his family have been training forever, you know, in various things. And of course he's been training forever, but they were like, we have a few questions like, will you accept cash only? Do you do contracts? Because we move around a lot. And like, what, what is it specifically that you offer here? So we went through the general walkthrough. And at that time, I'm like, I'll take any money I can get. I'm this is old school still and startup business. And I don't do contracts. I will take cash only. Um, if, you know, you guys want to pay for all of you one month and only one of you the next month. We'll just pay as you go. And that'll be the, the fee will be blah, blah, blah. And they started training with me. And, you know, I would see him for three or four weeks at a time. And then he'd be gone for like a month or two. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. I hope he didn't quit. Like maybe he didn't like training with me anymore. I mean, that's what I thought of because the family would still come train with me. And I just thought, you know, I hope, I hope he's not just sending his kids because whatever, but this guy didn't, you know, dislike the training that I was offering, but then out of nowhere, he'd show up again for like maybe two months. And this whole cycle would go on for a while. And eventually uh, the business partner that I had with Tampa combat ended up not being a very good business partner. And so we closed that specific gym and my Brazilian jiu-jitsu coach, David Vieira had just moved from Brazil to the Tampa Bay area. So I said to him, listen, if you're going to start a gym, I've got 30 or 40 students that I want to bring to your gym. If you'll allow me to bring my team to your gym and you allow me to teach some classes in exchange for my membership, we'll, we'll help you get your gym going. So he was like, that would be perfect. And so he got to start a gym with the people that he brought in right away and my 30 or 40 students right off the bat. And then Boone's family followed me there. So we kept training together. As time went on, I taught for with another guy that was a firefighter, like I used to be a firefighter, and I helped him with his gym. Boone's family followed me there. So everywhere I've ever gone to teach, train, or coach, they've stayed loyal to me and have followed me. And then, you know, eventually my 39th birthday had come along, and I'm not going to disclose what the gift was, but um, he never talked about work. I just thought he was a businessman or a contractor that came and went. Like he was very, very professional and being discreet about what he did. I just knew that I always saw his family. 
And when I saw him, great. And when I didn't, great. We got far enough along into the the career that he finally said to me, uh, we were probably training five or six years together, a couple of years before Benghazi. He finally said, listen, um, I work a job where I, where I travel and I, and I have to take care of people and I work like in a weapons-based environment, whatever his words were. And he said to me, uh, so if you don't mind, I'd like to bring a couple of blue guns and some rifles in to the class. And when class is over, can we stay? And I want to see what your thoughts are on grappling with a rifle. And I want to see what some defensive tactics takeaways we can work from standing to the ground while controlling the pistol. And I want to try to, um, you use your skill sets to try to take the weapon from me so I can work on what I've already been taught and kind of have, have an actual fighter punch me and kick me while he's trying to take my gun away. And did you have any uh, experience with firearms at the uh, time? Not, not much as far as shooting goes, but we've done some, some takeaways and some traditional self-defense, you know, kind of bullshit moves, but I'd had a, I'd always gone with some of my teammates and said, okay, that's not going to work in real life. What if we did this? So I had a lot of what if training with non-experts, but other curious, good athletes. What happened for me that was excellent was meeting him. So where he was getting fight training for me, I was getting all of his knowledge that he had learned from State Department, CIA, Marine Corps, uh, special ops, you know, whatever it is that he was doing at that time in his career. He was a police officer also. He was giving me very legit tactics and combatives training. I was giving him Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Muay Thai, very good hand-to-hand combat training. And then what was great was we were both so open-minded and very little ego that we would say, but yeah, but what if we took that technique and made it like this? So I'd say for a good 12 years, I've been doing very, very good fundamental training with him where we, we have made each other better. So we've been each other's coaches. And then, you know, one day um, he still never said the specific words. But one day he gave me a gift, uh, a big event happened in United States history. And he came up and I was pretty shit faced. It was my 39th birthday. And he'd come up to me and he said, uh, gave me a handshake. And he said specific set of words. And from his hand went into my hand, my birthday present. And it's, it's my most cherished item that I have. And I, I, I'm not, I mean, I know it's kind of a shitty thing to say, I have a secret, but I'm not going to tell you the secret, <laughs> but that's, that's the relationship. And he said, you know, I'm giving this to you because we're family. And, you know, the stuff that you've taught me over the years has helped to keep me alive. And the stuff that I'm teaching you, if you ever need it, I hope keeps you alive. And we're going to continue as family and we're going to continue making each other better. And to this day, we work together all the time. We do personal protection details, high threat, high net worth jobs together. He's brought me into a circle that very few civilians will ever get to do because he's seen my training, my techniques, and my talents firsthand. And he trusts me with his life. He trusts his other teammates with his life. And Chris has said the same thing. If I ever had a job where I needed somebody, you'd be on my team. And I'm not the military guy, but I'm a communicator and I have a a good skill set. and I'm not egotistical and I'm always ready to learn. So, um, you know, here we are now, he's back with me. Boone is at the UFC gym where I've been for almost six years. His whole family's training with me that that's here. Um, and he's getting very close to his Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. So, so you know, uh, next, next year, 2022, he'll be eligible. And I'm looking forward to getting to promote him as an old man and his jujitsu journey will culminate to a a very rare thing for him. But, you know, a bit of a long story. I apologize, but 
No, no, no. People love this, man. But, uh, apologize for. He, he walked into my place in 2003, wondering if it was the right spot for him. And I mean, there's not a thing I wouldn't do for him or his family. He's absolute brother. And then in 2017, he brought me over to a, a battle line tactical course and said, Hey, I, I want you to come over and teach combatives today. You just do some wrist ties, bicep ties, a couple arm drags, keep it real basic. Cause a lot of these guys are shooters, you know, they're not fighters. And we just want to introduce them to weapons retention and invite weapons access. Nervous as hell. I was like, okay, cool. And he goes, and you know, Tonto's going to be there. And I'm like, oh, great. Now I have to impress Tonto. <laughs> the last thing I want is for him to think that I'm some, you know, ass clown. Is, is Tonto an arrogant douchebag? Is he, does he think he's a good fighter? You know, like, is he going to try to challenge me in front of everybody? And I'm going to, you know, I mean, I don't know who he is. I'm going to have to step up. And he's heard about me for years. Because Boone would always talk about, oh, I, you know, trained with Benny when we were home from deployment or, you know, I trained with Benny, blah, blah, blah. So Chris knew who I was. And of course, I knew who Tonto was, but we'd never met each other to know what our real personalities were like. And they were already starting class. They were doing the opening briefing and medical procedure talk. And, you know, Chris looks up. I walk in. He sees me. We've seen a thousand pictures of each other and stuff, knew who each other was. He smiled so big, left the conversation, came over and gave me a hug, shook my hand. He's like, what's going on, brother? How are you, man? I, <laughs> I felt like I've known you for 10 years. It's finally, finally, we got together. You know, something along those lines where finally get together. And he goes, I can't wait to have you here working with us today. And Chris loved it so much and saw the need for a combative instructor with firearms. Because if you carry a gun, you got to be able to handle it and more than just being able to shoot it and holster it. And that was an instant brotherhood right off the bat. And, you know, we've been incredibly close ever since. He's another one. I mean, he's another one that I'd, I'd take a bullet for him. I'd run into a burning building for him. I'd fight for him. Um, I'd stand up for him in an argument, you know, like you do your best friends and your family. He's offered me so much in the last three and a half to four years with national travel, working with SWAT teams, working with police agencies, working with civilians that want to get better. Chris has opened so many doors for me and he 1 million percent trusts me to be the guy that represents him and his brand. And if there's one thing about Chris is we know that he does care about that. He doesn't yeah. want to put a bad product out. He doesn't want to bring in somebody that's going to be an asshole or a douchebag. And he's like, you know, even if there was a better fighter than you, that doesn't mean I want them because they're probably going to be arrogant. And nobody's going to like them. And when we leave battle line, People will often say, oh, my God, what a great honor to train with Chris. On day one, I finally got to meet Chris. I got to train with Chris. But all I could think about was what we were going to do in combatives tomorrow. Because, man, I never thought about somebody throwing me on the ground, beating the shit out of me, and taking my gun away from me. So they get the best of both worlds. They get something they weren't expecting, but they get to train with their hero. And, you know, I, I bring a funny, non-arrogant communication to the way that I teach. It's, we just laugh and have a good time. No egos. And you've seen pictures of me like jumping on top of a folding chair and trying to yeah. wrestle with Chris when he's talking. And, you know, I'm always like, you know, teasing him. And I mean, we just banter back and forth like I was in the military with him, you know? Um, so, you know, Boone in 2003, walking in all of our training together for the last 18 years and then getting to meet Chris through him. And then I've been on board with both companies ever since. Those guys got so popular and so busy that there was no way that they could be everywhere they wanted to be. 
So Battleline, I mean, they had to split because, you know, one of them had to go here that weekend. One of them had to go there that weekend. And since Boone is basically my neighbor here in Tampa Bay, we get to do a lot together throughout Florida because he's right here. But I still get to travel everywhere and be with Chris. So if I didn't win the freaking lottery and get to have (laughs) the best of both worlds to be Boone's lead combatant instructor and to be Chris's lead combatant instructor, I mean, that's jackpot for me, you know? And so um, I'm there for those guys whenever they need me. Battleline right now has gotten really specific where I don't get to go as much as I did go because people are just now coming out of their funk and starting to train again. So we're doing a little bit more course specific based on where we're going. I would have been in Chicago this weekend. It breaks my heart, but uh, I'll have a couple times with him for the last half of the year like we normally do. But I'm not going anywhere. Battleline's not going anywhere. Um, Chris is, I think, going to eventually slow it down to just a few times a year so he can be with his family and his kids a lot more often. But those few times a year, we're going to get the band together and we're going to kick ass in our classes. And in the meantime, I'm doing my protection details with Boone. I'm working a lot with Veritas Tactical, doing a lot of in-house classes and training with them. Some's women only. Some are, I got a knife fighting technique coming up with a guy that will slice and dice you. So he's going to show fighting with the knife. I'm going to show defense with the knife with Boone. And we're kind of coming together as offense, defense, and doing this great eight-hour course. And then we're doing, uh, you know, the threat management solutions is very similar to the battle line type classes. We're doing that stuff throughout Florida with a great group of instructors. And so, um, I, like I said, I, I want it, man, because I get to work with both of these incredible human beings that that I'd give just about anything for, you know, without without doubt. And I'd be there for their families. And I know that if anything ever happened to me, my wife and daughter are in excellent hands because they would never let them fall through the wayside. They'd become their family that's, all over. So it means, means the world to me, these guys. That's so cool, man. You know, you know what's interesting, and I definitely wanted to ask you about this, is you know, you were saying before how Chris was uh, at a weird place with, you know, after Benghazi and all that. The interesting thing is, I mean, I didn't know that you didn't know him until after that, because I could say I knew I met Chris right when 13 Hours of the Book came out. And to me, the way he describes himself is like I was angry. I never saw him as an angry guy. I mean, I know he was like, you know, not with his wife at the time, but he's always been the same guy as far as I've seen. I think a lot of that was internal. But I think to the outside people that he met, he's always been the same guy. Um, I didn't know, however, that you knew Boone long before 13 hours, before Benghazi happened. So I have to wonder with him, did you see a change in him after that all happened? Because Boone wasn't as much, I think, as Chris, the the media guy. He wasn't on Fox News all the time and, and doing all that type of stuff. And on, you know, Hannity or where I met Chris on Will Cow's show, Boone was a little bit more are reclusive from that but i'm wondering if you know being in that situation losing the guys that he did if it changed him in some way no you know if i could figure out how to get in his brain and like feed off of that a little bit like i would absolutely take his structure the one thing they really nailed in the movie other than you know the guy that played boone is a six foot four white guy i mean (laughs) yeah you know (laughs) boone boone is not six four uh, he's not a white guy, but which uh, I think, by the way, would have would have helped, you know, because the, the there is that stereotype that everyone in special ops is a white guy, and and it gets like a negative connotation somehow when you know Chris is is Mexican and Boone is black, and it's yeah, it is predominantly white guys, but it's it's not all of them, not at all, and they don't all have the grow a beard, I can destroy you, I'm a 
because Boone will tell you I can lose a fight at any moment. That's why I practice situational, spatial, and environmental awareness everywhere I go. And he and I are, we call that the awareness triangle. And he and I are doing seminars just strictly based off the awareness triangle, you know, and, and, you know, Chris isn't like that. He's not a guy that walks in a restaurant like I'm the baddest motherfucker in here. Like you'd never know it. If you didn't know him, he's just a dude, you know? So um, that's why I love these guys. But uh, no, the, the guy that played him doesn't look anything like him, but he played him perfectly. Very soft-spoken, very zen. All the gods, all the heavens, all the hells are within you. I mean, that's him in real life. He says shit like that, <laughs> you know? And he's like, I have a gun and I will use it. You know, he's not like, you know, he's not like the football player locker room kind of, dude, I will kick your ass right now. He's very stoic and smooth. He's always been that way. And if he would come home from a bad trip, he would say things to me like, let's just train. I had a bad trip. And I didn't, I, I never asked questions. If he wanted to tell me, I knew he was going to tell me. Once I figured out what he did and I knew who he was and what he was about, I never asked questions. I let him get it out how he wanted to get out. And usually it was through the training and us could just destroying the shit out of each other you know um, we've had a lot of good scraps back and forth beating each other up and making each other better um, but what you see in the movie if you've never met him is really how he is in real life and when Benghazi happened for him it was a day at the job you know he would say things like you know Benghazi wasn't the first war the first fight the first battle that Tonto and I and, and our team have ever been in you know, that's our job. Our job is to go places and win for America. You know, my choice of words, not his, but that was their job. Their job was to travel and represent this country in badassery and keep the red, white, and blue sacred and safe. And they've, they've done more than they'll ever be able to talk about, I'm sure. They've done more than they're ever going to be able to share with anybody, even their closest friends and loved ones. Benghazi was just one piece of their gigantic puzzle or one piece to an, a crazy quilted story that they could share. I mean, if they were like, fuck it, today's the last day I'm alive on my deathbed. I'm 999 years old and I'm going to let it all ride. We're, they would give out some pretty good stories, right? Um, but from Boone's perspective, he always handled everything as business. Easy day, day at the job. That we went there to do a job and thank God we got to come home. And he's horribly sad about the guys they've lost. Of course, he's heartbroken about losing teammates and brothers. That affects everybody regardless of how they handle it. But he handles it in a way, uh, the way that I, I feel like, again, he's never told me, but the way I see him, I think I know him better than almost anybody on the planet. And the way he honors his fallen brothers and sisters and his comrades is to keep training and to keep teaching and to stay ready so that he can keep doing what his skill sets allow him to do because they all did that together. And the last thing that I would ever want someone to do is to train so hard for the rest of their lives and let that go. So he's representing his team by staying in it, by being a teacher and an educator. He's making other people better based off of what him and his teams did and what they experienced. Um, but you'll never get emotion out of him. You'll never get... <laughs> Um, Which is the always, opposite of Chris. Chris can is. get emotional. It is. And what's funny is, is when Boone, when you'd see all these pictures of him, like he never smiles. I make him smile all the time. I make him laugh all the time. I'm like, wait till you guys start seeing more publicly him and I hanging out together. You're going to start seeing him smile because I know him like nobody else knows him. But he's just the most stoic dude you would ever meet. He's a brilliant mind. 
I don't know many people in the world smarter than him. Um, I don't know more people that are more physically able to do the things he can do when he doesn't look like somebody that could do that. He doesn't look like David Goggins. He doesn't look like a, a linebacker. He doesn't look like your movie stereotype Navy SEAL, you know? Um, he's just a guy that is one of the most badass epic dudes you'd ever meet that will do anything for you. But what you see is what you get. So from the day I met him to tomorrow, he's the same person. I've never seen it phase him or change him. I know that it has, but he has it under control. And I know that he looks at it like it was a good day. It was a bad day. And if it was a bad day, we've got to work to never let that happen ever again. That's what our training is for. That's what our job is. If it was a good day, we still have to get better, but we take what was good and we keep pushing that forward. And so Chris is like that also, you know, bad days, you got to learn from it. So that shit never happens again. This is why we train so hard, but a good day doesn't mean you can't get better, but a good day means you got to keep running with that while you're progressing at the same time. And so, yeah, they're very different. They're very different guys, but um, they're, they're excellent as a team. You know, if it, 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 again, from my story earlier, if everybody is exactly the same, you have a shitty team. Everybody needs a different personality. Everybody needs a different skill set, and everybody needs to be the one that can do that specific job at that given time. And everybody else is the rest of them are there for backup. Man, those dudes are an epic team. That's a hell of a group that came out of Benghazi, and we lost some really, really epic heroes from what I've learned from from my boys. But um, think about it. they all would have died or every American would have died if they weren't such a, a powerful team. And that's varying personalities, you know, very, very different personality traits, but they got the job done because they all did their skills. It's not about your personality. It's about your job. And, you know, they killed the fear, as I like to say, and they were disciplined to their training. And, and for the most part, they did win. They lost, they lost a lot that day, but they, they gained a lot more, you know, it could have been worse. So Absolutely. yeah, that's Boone, man. That's Boone in a nutshell in a five minute nutshell. <laughs> that's cool. That's cool. Cause I think the audience would love to hear a little bit more about who he is. And this, this really gets into that. So I, I appreciate you, you going along with us uh, there on that. Um, though, yeah, the last thing uh, I guess I'd ask you is if people, cause I do always see your posts from UFC Jim. So if people just want to train with you in a, you know, MMA capacity, they could just go to UFC gym in Tampa and you're there. Yeah. UFC gym, Clearwater. Um, we're on the, the Clearwater side of Tampa Bay. So we're, that's about five miles from the beaches. You know, so if you come on vacation, it's easy to get over to us. Um, we have great owners. We have great coaches. We have an awesome team in there. The clientele is super awesome. It's not a bunch of meatheads walking around. It's not a bunch of look at my muscle people walking around. I teach Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, Muay Thai and MMA Monday through Thursday night. I have everyone from today is your first day to active fighters. I allow zero ego in there, no matter how good you are. If you can come in and beat me up, that's fantastic because I'm going to learn from you. and It's going to make me a better teacher for my students. If you can't, I'm going to make you as best as I can. So a 1 million percent, check your ego, amigo, leave it at the door, come in, make each other better. So um, we work hard to make it a fun, viable place for everybody. So whether you're getting choked or getting punched or kicked or you're getting amazing fitness standards in there, you know, we love to have anybody. So it's UFC Gym Clearwater. And then I'm available for private lessons and personal training. 
Um, you know, Boone and I are doing classes around Florida. We're trying to set up some new ranges to come around where we're doing some grappling based classes now, grappling based weapons retention. So, but yeah, for the, for the common person wanting to train, you can walk in, you get your first day for free. You can do a drop-in rate. I think it's $25 for an entire day, or you can come in and discuss the varying memberships that we have. Awesome, man. And if people want to follow you, of course, at BG Combat on Instagram, uh, at Official Battleline Tactical. But this has been this has been great, man. I appreciate you coming on for a second time. We we got into a lot of different things here. And when I move to Florida, which likely is going to happen, you know, I know uh, where I will be is a little bit of a drive, but I'm going to come out there, man, because I know people in Tampa. Where, so where are you going to be at? Thing. It'll probably be like Boynton Beach. Yeah, I mean, maybe four hours, probably. That's not yeah, horrible. yeah, it's not bad. I, yeah. I, I and I like a good drive, man. I enjoy yeah. it. So we'll we'll hang in person. Too. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for for this episode, then, guys. We still have the um, I believe the Battleline Tactical or the Battleline Podcast mugs that we have are still on sale. If you're listening, I have the link to that in the description on uh, Tonto's Gear Locker. Um, but if you're here on this Monday, I think this is the last day that you can get those on sale and they'll be regular price. So yeah, check those out. Check out our sponsors, of course. Check out Ned and Fort Scott Munitions. Um, yeah, and if you want to follow me on Instagram, on Twitter, it's at Ian Scotto. Chris is, of course, back next week. Um, but this has been a blast, man. Hey, I'm gonna I wanna say I think I'm one of the elite few. I know there haven't been many two timers on this show, so I feel very honored to get to fill in for Chris and get to talk with you again. I can't wait to meet you in person because it's one of those, it's going to be like we've known each other forever, but <laughs> yeah, uh, my best to Chris. I love him like a brother and thank you so much for this awesome opportunity and stay safe. And anybody that's listening, man, let your demons go, kill the fear, go out and do something awesome. And I wish everybody the best. That's all for this episode of the Battle Line Podcast. But we'll be back on Monday with more American Straight Talk. Until then, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Battle Line Podcast and on Twitter at Battle Line Pod. To sign up for future Battle Line tactical courses, go to www.christantoperanto.net. Believe in yourself. Face all challenges head on. And as always, never quit. <laughs>